Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we childishly read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations preserve the edge. Whereas a movie serves many masters, namely that of both sight and sound, novelizations can eschew the music, glee, and charisma of movie stardom and instead show simply the terror of a child's plight. In stripping menace of spectacle, these books maintain their stakes throughout and serve up a creeping terror. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm Ethan Warren. And I'm Hannah Blackman. Labyrinth is a 1986 musical vanity... (laughs) Vanity project. (laughs) Yeah, well, kinda. You know what I mean? Labyrinth is a 1986 musical fantasy film directed by Jim Henson. It follows Sarah, an emotionally adrift teenager grappling with her father's remarriage, the consequence of which is the constant reprimand of her stepmother and the perpetual wails of a new baby brother, Toby. Inclined towards fantasy and whimsy, Sarah wishes that the goblins from her favorite book, The Labyrinth, which I have a million questions about, will steal her brother away and is horrified to discover that her wish has been granted with haste. The goblins, they come, they steal him. They're scary. It's very, very fast. Really distressing. The Goblin King, Gareth. (laughs) What a name. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Good enough to pass down. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Anyway, he presents her with a simple challenge. Penetrate his labyrinthine lair in 13 hours or never see Toby again. Will Sarah be able to rescue her brother in time, which, like, suddenly she wants to do? (laughs) How long is this date her parents went on that left her babysitting? Like, pretty long, right? Time be crazy in that Mm -hmm. labyrinth. The novelization of Labyrinth was written by A.C.H. Smith, a good friend and collaborator, based on the film by Jim Henson. It was published by All Books in 1986 and Arcaea in 2019. Is that true? Republished. My my copy was published in 1986 by Alma. My copy, which I I assume some of us have this new copy. My Just copy you. is really like, hey man, this was published in 2012. Stop asking questions. <laughs> it's really not that page is really not talking about 1986. Well, I think as we learned with Dark Crystal, both of these were published and then they fell out of print and then there was a resurgence and now they're back under this new label. Does yours have Incredible. all kinds of crazy context like in the Dark Crystal case? I'm sorry, we should talk about our guest first. Oh, no, okay. we, we it, there are 100 pages oh. of extra things at the end. Oh, why did I not buy this book? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty unreal. I, I just want to say, I believe that the time in the movie Labyrinth is not modified at all. That 13 hours pass and that that couple <laughs> is having a crazy good date. They got an airbnb they are just they're like role-playing strangers doing a meet cute it's a whole damn thing on the record don't think there's any magic in the movie (laughs) this is a work of strict realism (laughs) absolutely our guest today a culture writer from just the world operating in many places a freelance writer that could pop up anywhere you like to look and even some places you don't Sydney Urbanek, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. That was such a. I feel like I have to like going forward live up to that intro. Put that on a business card. 
You have to say 90% things that people are interested in and then something very objectionable to make that intro work. (laughs) The stakes have just been raised for me, I think, in terms of I have to appear now on the internet where you're not expecting me or even necessarily wanting me. So I'm going to have to brainstorm after this. Sydney, before we get started talking about Labyrinth, the film, do you have any relationship with the art form of the film novelization. You know what? I think this is the first one I've read in like 20 years. I was thinking about this in the run-up to this chat because I think the last one I read, I don't know why I remember this, but I think the last one I read was like a Shrek or Shrek 2, more likely Shrek 2 novelization that I bought through like a Scholastic (laughs) book fair. But I have no, like, I'm so fascinated by the whole concept of this podcast because I had so much fun reading this one that I'm like oh maybe there's this whole like untapped reading you know arm of my reading that I need to explore a little further so the short answer is like virtually none I'm I'm just looking up the Shrek 2 novelization over here it's 110 pages long I'm looking at it on Goodreads extremely good romance novel says somebody (laughs) (laughs) nice We're covering it. Congrats, Sydney. You've been invited back already. (laughs) By Jesse Leon McCann. Maybe I can find my copy at my parents' house. I'll I'll ask. The Scholastic Book Fairs were incredible advocates for the novelization sub-industry. They they still are. Are they actually? Are they pumping out Barbie, the junior novelization, and, and such things as that? Paw Patrol. Oh, my God. The only the thing Scholastic Book Fair wants to sell my kids is branded merchandise. I, I told this story many, many episodes ago, but I not understanding that there were different types of movies for adults, I one time for Christmas got my parents uh, the novelization of The Sixth Sense from a Scholastic Book Fair. And they were like, we don't like horror movies. Just because you're not allowed to watch this movie doesn't mean it's something we enjoy. (laughs) They said thank you. Sydney, what is your history with Labyrinth? How'd you first see it? And how do you feel about these days? So I have seen it for the first time in the last week. I watched it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so this is like, so I do have like an existing relationship with Henson, the Henson universe. I do have a semi-existing relationship with David Bowie. I'm sort of like that, that for me is kind of like my entry point into this film because I've been all year long making my way chronologically through his life slash career um, with the idea that like maybe that means I can thoughtfully write something about him one day, but I wanted to, as Ethan already knows, I really wanted to like experience this film where it appeared in the story. So I like very intentionally made sure I was in 1986 in my like separate research that I could like watch this in that moment. So it was kind of interesting with like the context, the immediate context, I guess. Yeah, in terms of like Henson stuff, uh, Christmas Carol and Treasure Island were my bit. They remain actually two of my big like comfort movies that I will throw on multiple times a year to the point where I'm like at risk of divorce. (laughs) In regard to the the research that that you just mentioned, what was going on in the world of uh, David Bowie or Henson or whomever you were looking at in 1986? Well. 
in general, the 80s were a time where um, Bowie, like by that point, had long been like a rock legend. But the 80s were his most commercially successful years where he sort of reached his, I I almost want to say cultural peak. It's like, that's kind of true, but more so commercial peak where like most of the world was listening to David Bowie at the same time. And like, you know, 1984, does that sound right? Was Let's Dance, the album. Um, I'll double check that if that's the right year. But basically it's it's a decade that he spends doing really well commercially, but just okay critically. It's sort of like his sellout years where by mm-hmm. the time Labyrinth shows up in that story, he's he seems like, like from a outsider point of view, that he's just like willing to try whatever. He also had like some existing history with like making obviously with making movies, appearing in movies, and then um he did a lot of experimenting in the eighties with like making soundtrack albums. And so this is one of the soundtrack albums that he ends up he ends up doing when does he emerge when you know when's when's the big bang so this is such an interesting question and topic because i guess uh, ziggy stardust comes out in 73 72 is that the debut no but that's what is interesting about it is he had been trying for like a solid editor editor don't cut the part where I know that that is not his debut, and I've definitely <laughs> know that for many years. But you know, leave, leave in me embarrassing myself as a David Bowie aficionado. So it was actually seventy-two, and he had been fully trying for like a decade to break through, and it just was not happening. There's like multiple stage names, multiple groups, multiple like lineups of different bands. There's like sort of a false start in the form of Space Oddity, which does really well. And then he disappears for a few years and then kind of comes back. And Ziggy Stardust was where finally he like had his moment. So I guess at that point, he's born in 47 or 48. So someone do that math for me. What year are we talking about? 86? 72. 72, of course, is uh, he'd be 25 years old or 26. Yeah, so he'd been from like age 15 sort of playing in bands, trying to like make something work. And it took a very long time. It's kind of, it's when in hindsight, when you like look at these explosive legends, you sort of think of them as like having exploded, you know, the quote unquote meteoric Mm -hmm. rise. But in his, in his case, took a while to have that and then um yeah i mean through in the 80s like by the time labyrinth comes out he's in his late 30s he's made some of his like best-selling things he had ever made would ever make but critical opinion had kind of like begun to recognize how um you know commercially friendly palatable the stuff he was making was and by the end of the decade he needed to like badly reset in terms of uh, creative creatively artistically so in the 90s and beyond he made a lot of he, he continued to make a lot of really good music but it was for the most part not listened to the same way as you know like china girl or any of the big 80s stuff the, the perception of him had shifted so that he wasn't as well respected is that sort of am i, I understanding that? i think it kind of depends on you who you ask probably but you know some people would have said 
And some critics at the time did say, like, he'd run out of ideas. He was not mm. um, inspired. He was just sort of trying to, like, keep a keep the train chugging. There is a big, like, creative spike that happens when he meets Iman, which doesn't happen until the early 90s. So this is kind of in the, like, weird... Labyrinth is, like, the beginning of the second half of the 80s, obviously. And I think he made one more studio album after this film. And then he kind of, like, took a while to bounce back from this whole chapter do you think the music in the film labyrinth is good what a complicated (laughs) question it's a it is a complicated question it's funny because i was talking about like muppet treasure island and a christmas carol and these other henson universe movies and i like the music in this movie but i don't think it quite lives up to what we have seen a Henson movie soundtrack do otherwise. Like, it can be so much, you know. Or a Bowie song. Right? That's where I thought you were going. Well, that too, except... <laughs> That's kind of what I was asking. That too, except that in the 80s, there's like, you know, he does have these really important, like, landmark hits. If you're looking at it as like a quantity thing, though, like if you laid out every song David Bowie released in the 80s, it's, it's a long list. And there's only like, you know, f- four or five real hits that like everybody, your dentist, your grocer all know, you know? So you're just saying that maybe in the 80s, they weren't good. Like they <laughs> were there. Some of them were good. Some of them were nothing. Some of them are good. I think it's it's relative, right? Like kind of, <laughs> w- what do you guys think of the music in this movie? It's probably obvious given that you experienced the beginning of the episode, that every episode begins with me writing up a thing where I force my opinion out into the open, and then other people go, hey, I really disagree with that, and I really am offended that you used it as an intro, or whatever. And yeah, I basically, I I read the novelization first, and I felt like, as a story, it was quite interesting, with interesting stakes of we have to get this child back, and all of this is kind of... uh, kind of crucial, you know, it's a baby, the the most vulnerable thing. Uh, and then I watched the movie and uh, David Bowie, I'm not saying it's not possible to sing in a way that is uh, scary, I think it is, but um, Scar singing and dancing in The Lion King, this is not. Mm-mm. He is too winsome for me. He is too charming. He is too electric. And so the moment he started singing and dancing with that baby, I said, that baby will be fine. Nobody, stop worrying about the baby. Everything's good with the baby. He's got a new dad. Old dad didn't seem that great anyway. And uh, yeah, I think that was a problem for me. And also the songs were so simplistic in a certain way, like the rhyme schemes of some of the songs that at first I went, oh, this is interesting. It's playing into the childhood thing. You know, there's almost a nursery rhyme quality to it. But then I did get sick of them by the end. I think they're bad. <laughs> I don't think they're memorable, catchy, musically pleasant, add anything. I, I do think there's a case to be made that like the songs undercut the stakes. And, you know, like as you were saying, Andrew, like we're supposed to we're supposed to hate this man, see him as the villain, but he keeps like making all these I won't say Muppets, but he make he's making all these Muppets sing and dance with him. Um the two things sort of <laughs> sort of clash. Yeah. Well, I think the question is, then, what kind of threat does he have to represent? 
Because I don't think the I don't think the issue needs to be like you know I think when the Goblin King in the cultural consciousness is to steal a baby, I don't think the issue is that the baby is not going to be okay. I think the issue is that the baby's been stolen. You gotta get your baby back. The baby's gonna become a goblin. Yeah, and I mean, like you you could do worse than to become David Bowie, but um, there's also just the existential threat he seems to represent to Sarah, which is a level that. As a man, I'm not sure I can access even as somebody who grew up adoring this movie. Um, I am always much more curious what women who grew up adoring this movie have to say about the uh, what what Jareth represents to Sarah, because um, it seems fraught. I have a complicated question. Okay, well, let's get into it. <laughs> I had never seen this movie before either, so neither of Sydney or I apparently well, me, are the person Me neither. So, Ethan, about. you're the only one who saw it before a week ago. <laughs> I, I foisted this yeah. on all three of you, and I'm so... <laughs> pleased i'm happy to have finally seen it but watching it as a grown woman i was like surely the concept is that the goblin can re- king represents a sexual awakening into womanhood that part of sarah's journey is this like giving up of childish things and stepping into the role of mother which is sick and appalling and i hate it a lot i find it really frustrating in this movie and in many stories um, and so therefore, of course, Jareth is a hot, sexy guy who makes her feel a complicated way of like, do I want to join the Goblin King in his sexual romps or do I want to return to the childish caregiver, like Madonna thing, whatever. But then I don't feel like that's what's happening in the movie, perhaps because Bowie is respectful of the fact that Jennifer Connelly is a child. And so his vibe is not sexual. It's just weird. Her vibe towards him is not, I have a crush on this guy. Maybe because she's not a good actress yet. Mm. So, like, I don't know what I'm actually supposed to take from what's actually happening in the film. Or the book, in the, for that matter. Oh, we don't turn to A.C.H. Smith for clarity on the sexual awakening <laughs> that Jareth might represent. <laughs> <laughs> I felt, reading the book, which, once again, was the first thing I did, that... Maybe it's because I haven't experienced womanhood, but I just wasn't thinking about it so much. And I was more thinking about childhood, right? And uh, Mm -hmm. I felt that even though I don't have a perfect grasp on what it is, whatever's going on in this story has to do with the assumption of responsibility in a way that isn't necessarily motherhood, but she sees a brother, which is a thing that, can give you a lot of joy as necessarily a pest. And at the end of the book, more explicitly than in the movie, she's really going, uh, oh, I actually kind of like my brother and I'm glad that he's back. And I I don't really know what my family dynamic's going to be, but I, I look forward to exploring it as opposed to closing myself off from it. And so I saw her going from totally unwilling to change to being ready to submit to a family dynamic, which is excited to have her. Uh, And on that level, I did find it kind of rewarding. All that being said, I do think the book Jareth kind of wants to smash. All of this is complicated by the part of the end where he's like, love me and I'll be your slave. Mm -hmm. Like that shows up so late. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny because what I did know of this movie previously, like aside from the whole David Bowie Jennifer Connelly are in this, you know, one of her first big movies, blah, 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 is that this is like a, for a lot of uh, 
probably like people of all genders but for a lot of like young women who saw this movie when it came out in particular like David Bowie was some kind of like formative you know puberty related memory and so I don't think I quite realized going in that Jennifer Connelly is like a 15 year old that he's in love with like in a literal sense (laughs) and it is it is interesting that obviously the novelization like dials up or at least sort of fleshes out some of the strange motivation like linked to her mom's new bow that she's sort of projecting onto this goblin king man i do think there's something you know the only the only scene where she seems to come close to thinking that he's like you know a sexy dude is the one where she's like literally been drugged drugged yeah Mm -hmm. so i don't know there's a lot there's a lot about this movie where i don't necessarily want to do that lazy thing of just like from a 2023 perspective much about this film doesn't hold up i do think it's even for like 86 asking something interesting of its audience in terms of like the baseline what they have to buy into conceptually i think one big mistake that you can make with this movie is thinking there's any coherent vision behind it (laughs) what um which which there just fundamentally isn't okay um unfortunately and i that's i think kind of what is was partial part of what's special about it um i watched this movie three times this year (laughs) i love this movie so much I mean, I, do you want me to talk a little bit about the development of this movie and how it's it's a crazy mess? Well, I'm curious, like, if you say there was no vision in the sense that it had, like, it was like a too many cooks type thing. But in general, I want to hear your, I want to hear the Henson angle. Yeah, I mean, our story begins immediately after The Dark Crystal, um, which is a novelization that we also covered earlier this year, right? Yeah, it's it's been a long year. Um, and That can't be true. I reject that. It has yeah. to have been a year ago or more. I know. Anyway. No, no. Um, so it, they, it's it's the premiere of The Dark Crystal, and uh, Jim Henson and Brian Froud have just basically realized that their careers have been ruined because The Dark Crystal is such a mess that nobody is going to enjoy. And they tumble <laughs> into a limousine, and Jim Henson goes, Brian, the next one's going to be so much better. And they realize two things. It needs to have human beings. And it needs to at least try to be funny. Whether this movie is successfully funny, certainly up for debate. But they're going to try this time. <laughs> which everybody agreed was lacking in, La- in uh, Dark Crystal. And then, yeah, it is, it's literally Brian Froud goes, I like goblins. Jim Henson was like, I want to talk about folklore. Maybe let's look at Irish folklore, whatever, whatever. And Brian Froud goes, nope, it's goblins or nothing for me. And Jim's like, I can work with that. What do goblins do? And Brian's like, they steal babies. <laughs> He's like, okay, well, that's our that's our movie, I guess. And they have a complicated sexual relationship with young girls. Well, so then Goblin Market. I mean, I, you know, much further down the road, we get to uh, to who we should cast as Jareth, but we'll get to that. So who who's going to turn this movie into? Who's going to turn this idea into a movie? We get Terry Jones of Monty Python, because Jim Henson's obsessed with Monty Python for some reason. And he just writes a movie based on um, the concept art. He just basically starts writing, and anytime he can't think of something to come next, he just picks up concept art by Brian Froud and just writes a new scene. And Jim takes it and goes, well, okay, sure, but 
it's um, not serving Sarah, I think. So he throws it to another writer, whose name I forget, who sends it back, and now the story is serving Sarah, but now the story is not funny anymore. And guess who also has a lot of thoughts? George fucking Lucas, <laughs> who is an executive producer on this movie for some reason and has a ton of notes. So who does Jim Henson call in? Elaine May. And he goes, here's two drafts of the movie and George Lucas's notes, Elaine May, come up with a movie for Whites me. Lights herself on fire. <laughs> We're already in pre-production. Good luck. And so one of my favorite games with this movie is to try and detect where Elaine May could be in it. <laughs> because by all accounts, she is the one that Jim Henson was really happy with. Um, hmm. Like she turned in the draft that, that they went with. But there's very clearly, I think, a lot of Terry Jones in this and probably a lot of the other guy. Um, but then there's little lines like what I, when I finished watching this movie today for my third time this year, the line I put as my letterboxed review still makes me laugh. And I just have to imagine it's an Elaine May line where Sarah's mad at Hoggle and he goes, well, you have to see it from my perspective. I'm a coward and Jareth scares me. <laughs> Which that just, it feels like her. So when I say it had no coherent vision, it's it's just that even Jim Henson, who directs this movie, was was from square one, like running behind Brian Proud's idea. Different people are throwing their perspectives into it. And and then at a certain point they just start shooting. And partially he just wanted to keep his team busy because he didn't have a project for them. And he was losing team members to projects like uh, Return to Oz. was also shooting and wanted the, the Jim Henson people. And he had to put something into production. Um, he needed something for his son to do. His son plays Hoggle, um, which I find <laughs> rather adorable. Um, his son, the director of Muppet Christmas Carol. Yeah. And does, does Brian Henson also voice Gonzo in that movie? I don't think so. I think Gonzo has pretty no. consistently been Dave Goals since okay. forever. Okay. For the listener, I always forget that Andrew is chugging monster energy drinks. It's Rockstar. <laughs> rockstar <laughs> energy yeah. drinks. Rockstar Pure Zero. In the middle um, of the night through all of these recordings. It does not keep me from sleeping. So everything's good. <laughs> yeah. There's so much good Henson bullshit with this. Um, Maurice Sendak threatened to sue him because he called the fireys the wild things. Mm. And Maurice Sendak was like, that's proprietary. <laughs> um, Fair enough. But drama, it's really that he was just mad at Jim for getting divorced and he took his wife's side in the divorce. Mm. So he was he was suing <laughs> Jim over the term wild things to be yes, petty. Yeah. And then he wanted to cast Sting. It was almost Sting as Jareth. That's my last little trivia point. Um, he was he was like, we need a rock and roll star who oozes sexuality. It's got to be Sting. Sting. Yep. Like I I think Bowie is hot. He's interesting. He has like a very complex sexuality. Sting is like a sexy guy. You have a puberty awakening about, <laughs> mm-hmm. especially in '86. Bowie's too, like, ethereal for me. I don't know. Maybe this is a personal Hannah revelation. You can basically pluck him from Dune and put him right in this movie. Yeah, but coming from the guy who also sang, like, Don't Stand So Close to Me about, like, a teenage girl, I don't know if that would add, like, a weird Uh, dynamic to this story. It maybe works that Bowie is a bit sexless in this movie. Yeah. It's probably for the best. I don't really want to watch an adult man come on to a... Very young girl. As much as Sarah is like 15, 16. 
Jennifer Connelly looks really young. She's a baby. This is also just like a. I have to say this. Like it's a, this is a very like cod piece forward film. <laughs> I said to yes. while watching it, I said to my husband, I was like, this man's wiener has been out the whole movie. <laughs> that was my first I real note. Going to. I had always heard that this was a very codpiece heavy movie and I had expected more. Me too. Honest. Me too. And it's it's there, but like I was really like, I thought this was gonna be As I watched this today, I was thinking to myself throughout most of the movie, like, where where's the dick? Like I I've been told my whole life <laughs> that I was gonna get such an extravagant show of that. And uh it was it's there. It's sprinkled in there. I guess I might have been scandalized by it as a What did you want from Jim Henson? I don't know. I don't know, but people really have talked it up. Throughout the th- yeah. the the thirty two years I've been alive, so I guess we've just seen more cod piece and things, Andrew, and we're in 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 yard. Yeah, it. well, it is it is <laughs> it is what I watch in lieu of any pornography. I'm just always pulling up uh, <laughs> por- people wearing cod pieces in film, so I'm very desensitized. I have a weird side note comment about this movie. It's not related to this. I'm gonna try and steer us back on track. Um. <laughs> It, it is related to what Ethan was just talking about in terms of the team, but this is a movie where the crew is very Jones-heavy because, so David Bowie is David Jones in real life. Um, we've got Terry Jones, who wrote the script, <laughs> and then David Jones made the music with Trevor Jones. So when you when the credits are rolling, it's like everyone's, everyone's a Jones, whether like in front of you or just because like you bring that... You know, you know David Bowie's government name in the back of your mind, and like you're thinking about that too, as we all do. And none of those people are related. No, but it's just sort of like a it's like a keeping up. <laughs> I'm gonna say it. It's a keeping up with the Joneses. <laughs> Very good. To jump into the book, I thought, and I read the book first, as I said before. So no relation to the movie. I thought it was a, an, a, an incredible movie for novelizing. Like, I thought it flowed as a book mm-hmm. insanely well, as I often do. I'm going to read the first line of the book here. Chapter one, The White Owl, and it says, Nobody saw the owl, white in the moonlight, black against the stars. Nobody heard him as he glided over on silent wings of velvet. The owl saw and heard everything. He's not doing too much, for the most part. In this book, he's not doing these huge embellishments of whatever, but he is presenting what we end up seeing in the movie, and it just tastes good. It just goes down real smooth. Mm -hmm. We almost immediately after that get into things that are textually in the movie, where we're adapting shots into text, but just that little uh, aperitif of, you know, uh, welcome to a book. So glad to have you in a book. Really worked for me. I was glad to be back in uh, ACH Smith's world. I was glad to be in ACH Smith world, but in a world where, like, I know what all the words. Yes. Mean. Oh, yes. Okay. I I actually could not find my copy of The Dark Crystal, but I wanted to <laughs> read a passage from it on the pod, and uh, and and uh, I'm not going to. But this is such a superior book. Just because you start the Dark Crystal and the Dark Crystal is going, the Skeksis took the shards of the Crystal of Truth and they made it into a, and then that, gobbledygook, gobbledygook. and it's and you're like, what am I? E- what's happening on the page? The fact that this, this is still ninety five percent nonsense, but the fact that there's a human child at the center of it going, it appeared to be or it looked like hugely helpful for me. 
and repeatedly saying it's not fair. Well, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't fair. It's it's truly not fair. It's not fair. I've been thinking that I should drop the word hammy as many times as I can in the coming days. <laughs> I guess that's part of it too, though. Like she's trying to speak. She's trying to like affect this adult way of speaking. I thought so. Obviously, if you're looking for it in like the frames of the film, you can read this into them. But what I, I what I did was I watched the film. Then I read the novel. Then I watched the film again. And the second watch was a lot richer with all of the context with the, like, sort of aspiring actress stuff. Mm-hmm. Because it makes... I don't know. When I watched the film the first time and she's just, like, dressed in period costume, practicing lines in, you know, her local park, I didn't know necessarily if she was, like, an, an aspiring actress or if she was just sort of a, mm-hmm. a quirky teenager because, you know, I don't know. But it explains a lot. And then how she also has this, like, she's filled her life with things and like organizing her material things because she can control them and then when you finally in the film get to like the stuff with the junk lady and it it hits a lot harder because you actually have done some thinking about like what any of this means you know to this character yeah i mean i think that's what her journey is we talked earlier about like is her journey towards um motherhood or andrew's supposition of what it might be towards um, it seems like I think her... that was a hundred words long. <laughs> <laughs> um, it it seems like her journey is a little bit towards not being a hoarder. Um, like she <laughs> she loves her stuff, and then one of the big turning points is that the junk lady is like piling all her stuff on top of her and making fun of her for how much she loves her stuff. And then at the end, she gets rid of her Evita poster, etc. That one really jumped out to me on my third watch of the year. <laughs> I think so much of this story is mean to teenage girls. And once I had reached the point in reading, so I read the book first and then I watched the movie. I reached a point in the book, I think it was in that junk lady sequence, where I was like, it's okay to want things and have things. You're fucking 15. (laughs) It's okay to like have dolls and care about the things you own. That doesn't make you a bad person. You're panda slippers. Um, And... Yeah, I mean, like, God forbid you have some sentimentality towards things that mattered to you in your life. Or, like, you love your mom who divorced your dad. Like, fucking God forbid you like your mom. I reached a point where I was like, this this story thinks that she's, like, a vapid bitch for liking things, for not being totally engaged with her baby brother, for being kind of cold to her stepmom, and for admiring her mother, her actual mother, her biological mother. Um, and once I sort of like crossed the line into thinking that this story is mean to teenage girls, it just like I couldn't get back on the level of like supporting the actions of the book. And that carried into the movie for me. The end, the the actual ending note of the book and the movie are so different that I'm so unbelievably glad that I watched the movie second. So I ended on a note of like positivity back on the whole thing. Because if I had ended on the ending of the book, I would have been like, fuck this. This is awful. This like hurts me as a person who was once like a slightly selfish teenage girl, which is okay to be, in my opinion. (laughs) Is that unfair to Jim Henson and his male compatriots? I think it's quite fair to Jim Henson. (laughs) Hannah, there's no reason that we need to go in order. So uh, uh, Mm -hmm. elucidate. What's, What's your issue with the end of the book? 
the very, very end, she returns to her bedroom, takes down, like, all the pictures of her mom and her mom's new boyfriend and her, like, pictures and her fantasies and her dolls and her dreams of being an actress. But notably leaves... Leaves one of, I think, her and her parents pre-divorce, which I thought was an interesting gesture. Yeah. (laughs) Well, she, like, puts away all of her childish things, is kind to her stepmother in a way that, like, everyone's confused by, and then Hoggle and everybody is like, we'll we'll always be here for you. And the final note is, like, sometimes when you need something, you really just have to let it go. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to be alone in this now. I've got, I've gone through it, and now I don't need you. Thank you for everything. Goodbye. I'm alone now. And uh, that's sad. That makes me sad. <laughs> and I really <laughs> like in the movie that she's like, yes, I need my friends. And then they all, like, sing and dance and hug, and she gets to keep her friends. And her whimsy and her joy, like all of that remains part of her in a way that the book feels like she's like, and now to be a grown up. And I'm like, you're still a child. You're a child. Be a child. I don't know. I I feel very differently about the childhood stuff. I I think because (laughs) Sarah is a teenager and I'm in no way saying, you know, grow up, put away childish things. I but I did feel like the movie in particular was imparting to me that she had some arrested development going on, that she was stuck in the 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 this escapism of I'm going to indulge in this fantasy as maybe like a 10-year-old would, even though I am 16. And I'm not putting judgment on that. Like, it's fine that she was coping that way. But my understanding of what the movie was doing was saying okay, this obsession I've had with the book The Labyrinth and not living in the world that I'm in and not being with my family is uh, emblematic of, you know, this thing I'm avoiding, right? And then when she matures at the end of the book and she's like, I'm ready to, like, be a sister to my brother, I'm ready to try to be a daughter to this woman, then... She's like, I'm I'm ready to put away some childish things and I'm very okay with it. It's sort of the vibe I got. I, I just find the, if you want to sell me on on this movie being about a, a child who's full of wonder and that's great, I just think it has to be a younger child. I think women are forced to grow up so fast. And I'm kind of sensitive to that in, in fiction. I think this is partially me and what I'm carrying into this story. Um... But, like, I think 15 is not adults. 15 is not a grown-up. 15 is not even, like, go out on your... That's not college. Like, you're... You're a kid. And dreaming at 15 is important and fantasy is important and fine. I don't think you have to be, you know, stop doing fantasy Mm -hmm. when you're... Like, you cross into teenagedom. And I, it's kind of feels a little bad if you're uh, Jim Henson spent his whole life doing fantasy, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know, man. And conscripted his children into the the family work. I mean, his all of his kids, mm-hmm. I I think, are involved in the, the Henson Company somehow. Um, maybe not all of them, but uh, many of them. And he seems to have been a, a good dad, not a not a good husband, but a good dad. I think I would have less problems with some of this stuff if the rest of the movie was a little bit more cohesive in ways. You know, if I didn't have the time to stop and think, like, what is she, what are we trying to say about this girl? 
if I felt that her relationship with her brother, it feels like she doesn't fucking like him at all, ever. I know he's a baby. There's nothing to like, whatever. He's like a lump of no personality. It's a baby. But like, she has no affection for him whatsoever at any point. And she's just like, I guess I have to get him back. And I'm like, why? Because her oh. stepmom will be mad at her. <laughs> just, just, right. Is that enough for me to want this growth for her? I'm not in the fantasy of it. I'm not totally sure it is. It's, it's interesting. Um, like there's this sort of subgenre of movies where like I don't I think I they get under my skin because I'm like a big sister to a little sister but it's like um older sibling is supposed to be taking care of a younger sibling and they fuck up somehow and that's like the driving force behind like the coming of age for a character so like I mean in terms of movies for kids this is an example so is Frozen um but there's also movies like mermaids and in her shoes where in some cases like the older sibling doesn't even realize that they care until suddenly they do it's like a nice little shortcut to like oh my god i was i'm a terrible babysitter and turns out i have some growing up to do myself unrelated to this kid but it's the kind of like i always find myself like that that element of the plot surprised me but it's the kind of story where i'm always like kind of experiencing it through my fingers because I'm like, oh man, this is the sort of thing I was like, mm -hmm. I was raised to have nightmares about, you know? I just wish the movie was doing a little more to engage with her actual motivation. Like, is it that she genuinely likes her baby brother and feels regret for impulsively wishing the goblins would take well, him away? Well, because like, what, Could be what value that. does he add? Is it that she's worried that her parents are going to be mad at her? That's a different motivation to go on this quest. Both are interesting and valid. I'm not sure the movie is doing either or interested in either. She just has to be a girl who's like, my baby brother, though. He's a baby. He's a boy. And I'm, I kind of grade against that. Well, maybe we should figure this out as a group. Like, what value does Toby bring to the family in the first place? What was the point yeah. of, the, of the labyrinthine <laughs> journey? Discuss. He's cute. <laughs> he cries. He's a tubby little boy. He cries boy. too much. If he's not there... The police will have questions. <laughs> I was under the impression that if she just let the goblins take him and went home, that her parents would come home to have forgotten that there was ever a baby. Like just erased from and the so whole time space. Yeah. yeah. That what he's, what, Ger what Jareth is offering her is a life without the baby, without any responsibility for the baby, without ever having to ever be an older sibling. The crib is still there, though. Okay, okay. Well, because she rescues the baby. But I just don't. I don't. I like that idea as an idea in a story. I just don't <laughs> see evidence for it in any place Magic. at all. Magic. <laughs> it's like eternal sunshine, but for your like annoying little brother who won't stop crying. Yeah, the magic of the labyrinth. <laughs> I felt that the film did not justify why she suddenly heel turned to being wanting to rescue Toby and and consequently also didn't totally close the loop on how she had changed in the end because I didn't understand why she had changed motivation in the beginning. That said, Atch Smith, my great friend, uh, I, I felt like did some work to make this cohesive. So... And by that, note to the listeners, about 80% of the time I say cohesive, I mean coherent. Page 13, 
it says, uh, he was her half-brother, really, but she did not call him that. Not since her high school friend Alice had asked, what's the other half of him then? And Sarah had been unable to think of an answer. Half nothing to do with me. That was no good. If it, wa- or it wasn't true either. That's perfectly good. <laughs> Sometimes she felt fiercely protective of Toby, wanted to dress him up and carry him in her arms and take him away from all this to a better place, a fairer world, an island somewhere perhaps. At other times, and this was one, she hated Toby, who had twice as many parents in attendance on him as she had. When she hated Toby, it frightened her because it led her into thinking about how she could hurt him. There must be something wrong with me, she would reflect, that I can even think of hurting someone I dote upon. Or is it that there is something wrong in doting upon someone I hate? She wished she had a friend who would understand the dilemma and maybe explain it to her, but there was no one. Her friends at school would think her a witch if she even mentioned the idea of hurting Toby. And as for her father, it would frighten him even more than it frightened Sarah herself. So she kept the perplexity well hidden. I like this uh, depiction of she feels conflicting things. She feels guilt over having intrusive thoughts, even though we, the reader, know that everyone has horrifying intrusive thoughts from time to time. Uh, I, I thought that that was great. And, and in microcosm, in that moment, she has the transformation that she will experience when Toby is then kidnapped, right? Where she flips from... I love him to I hate him, and then she's going to, in a couple pages, switch from I hate him, oh now, oh no, now that he's gone, I've lost both things. I've lost the thing I hate and the thing I love. I'm surprised she doesn't have a single friend with divorced parents. I feel surprising to me. Um, yeah, good point, Andrew. Thanks. We need to get her, we need to get her on child of divorced parents TikTok. We need to get her on OCD TikTok. But I guess... Didn't have those yet. I just need to uh, share briefly a, a phenomenon that I've been experiencing recently. Um, Hannah can appreciate this. Um, it doesn't happen with with other books that I read. Like I'm reading the the new Rebecca Mackay novel, and it's it's great. And this isn't happening to me. But when I pick up a novelization, I read it in Andrew Overby's voice. <laughs> it's it's impossible for me to read one of these books and not hear you reading it to me on the episode later. <laughs> Does he does he make uh, does he make cracks that don't go anywhere? Always. <laughs> <laughs> Something I do appreciate about this story is that, with the exception of you know certain details in her in her room and like the production design, the story could kind of take place whenever. Like it's it's not super timely. The only things you need are like even with the the novelization, the only things you need in terms of. Um, what exists is like a telephone and maybe like you would use the word dating or your your stepmother would but it could it could take place the story 30 years 40 years prior and it's still and i guess that was part of the point right was they were trying to do like another not do another you know alice in wonderland another like where the wild things are but something that would have the same kind of like timelessness it feels very Alice in Wonderland to me too, as opposed to like the Wizard of Oz, for example, which is also clearly a touch point here. But it feels more Alice in Wonderland because it's very much a series of disconnected events that this girl is stumbling through, encountering other characters who are weird, who scare her or excite her or challenge her. And she comes through at the other side, 
a sort of smarter, cleverer, more capable person than she started. Many pages of the edition of the novelization I have are lined paper that are, I believe, Brian Froud's notes on what could possibly happen in this movie. And I'm trying to find the page, but there is a page where he writes in big letters, various random events before reaching baby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he accomplished the goal. There's various random events before she accomplishes baby. Just the broadest plot synopsis. Lose baby. Stuff happen. Find baby. The end. Encounter some of the most terrifying beasts Hannah Blackman has ever seen. <laughs> That's like me outlining something I'm working on, like a piece of writing. I always like make that joke where in the like penultimate paragraph, sort of put all of your counter arguments in there. And then you finish with the last paragraph being like, nevertheless... <laughs> And then you're like, I can't, I can't every point. <laughs> but it's, just, it's the same thing. It's like, say something here, pull a quote from transcript, pop it, try and use the word, you know, um, zenith in this paragraph. Like, I've, I've, got my, I've got my bones here, but it's like something that I was thinking about earlier when we were talking about how, like, the conversation after, like, the um, Dark Crystal premiere is it's like when you have your topic, but not your story. So, you know, like when you say to an editor, like, oh, man, I want to write about the 30th anniversary of the Nightmare Before Christmas. And your editor is like, that's a topic. What's the story? (laughs) What's the story? It feels like that question did get answered in the making of Labyrinth, but in a way where like it kind of just clears the post. It feels as if, if I may say, every single character she encounters should teach her something about herself, her life, her growth. They don't. I, unless they do, and I don't get it. Like, I need maybe need someone to explain to me. Like the Fireys, for example, who are, to me, the most terrifying things I've ever fucking seen <laughs> in my life. They're so unbelievably scary. And watching that sequence, like, makes me want to look away. It's scarier to me than anything I've like, ever seen in a horror movie. Maybe they should teach her that, like, being a wild child who doesn't show up on time to babysit is not a good way to live. But I'm it's not feeling like that's the lesson she's learning in that moment. Or anything other than, like, how fucking scary these big-ass birds are. They, like, take their heads off. I want to eat you and rip you to shreds. Well, one one lesson that I learned from that segment is when you've got a film that, like, accomplishes so much of what it accomplishes with purely practical effects, you don't need to squeeze in the very obvious, um, is it CGI in that scene? But that's the one that was, like, the only part of the film where I felt like, ah, I've been pulled out of this world because we've like done the sort of like George Lucas attempt to use what technology yeah. we have even though we shouldn't the 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 screening whatever color the screen may be look really bad I think that adds to the terror to me <laughs> I really like the description of the fireies in the book which I I won't read verbatim but there's just a lot of a lot of references to how they were wild and they were wild on being wild <laughs> They feel kind of like the the vultures in the jungle book to me that they're like in the book particularly. I was like these are just those beetles vultures who are like we should be eating girls. <laughs> um, 
were less scary. To, I mean, scary in the book, but not so scary that I wanted to run away. I, I really love the reversal of, hey, look at us. We're crazy creatures. You never know what we'll do next. And that's terrifying. We don't play by any rules. Hey, you can't throw someone else's head. <laughs> <laughs> But that Ooh. this this sequence is is one of several where ACH Smith was stuck with needing to write a scene where instead there is a song and mm. he couldn't mm. he couldn't just express I listened to the uh the novelization of Frozen 2 a lot what because my kids love it and we listen to it in the car uh and and in that case <laughs> you know what when there's something that works for all three of them hot damn we're listening to that thing <laughs> Um, <laughs> What's that thing run? Two and a half hours total? Oh no, this 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 is a nice chunky one. But in that case, the songs he can just or whoever wrote that book can just basically write the lyrics of the songs and it functions as as narrative because it's a musical in that sense. You can't just have like and then the fireys sang about how they ain't got no jewelry, ain't got no suitcase. So he has to write all this weird dialogue about them shouting at each other about the rules of whose head can be pulled off. As someone who had not seen the movie, I gotta say, totally didn't notice the absence of the songs in the book. Didn't even know the movie was a musical. It totally worked for me. I thought, oh, this is just another dark fantasy. It's almost like the songs are not necessary to the movie. <laughs> well, the songs are not necessary, but I, I felt like A.C.H. Smith addressed the topic of every song, uh, the, the, mm -hmm. the Fireys being, trying to, to show that they were unpredictable, uh, the song where Bowie is going, wow, it's so fun to have a human baby. We're cool. Isn't it fun to be a goblin? They were all written in a way where I felt like they fit perfectly into the text and no song detected got past me. I agree with that completely. The the place where ACH Smith sort of falls for me is the... Like, I didn't realize Sir Didymus was a little fox. Me neither. He, he goes... That's not in the he book. He works so hard not to describe Sir Didymus as a fox. That really jumped a out fox. to me. fox. Let him be a little fox. I, I got to find that description because it's so <laughs> wild how hard he works not to. Yeah. If you had just read the book, you'd be like, a small man. He's a little <laughs> man. He's a withered little old man. But he's a little fox and it's cute. I mean, except when he opens his mouth too wide and then it's scary. <laughs> I wish we'd spent more time with the worm in this film. Like, I feel like we met the worm. I'm like, oh my God, first real creature in the in the labyrinth. Like, let's meet this worm. Oh my God, he's got a wife. Let's meet, let's meet the missus. And then um, didn't get to do that. I feel like if I could add a scene to the film, it would be a tea with the, the worm and his missus. I just think yes. I needed to say that. That couple is so lonely. That made me deeply sad. <laughs> that that worm couple. They're going, we do have each other and that's so nice, but would you please come in? If she had had tea with that worm, she might have learned which way to the castle True. much, much sooner. True. I mean, she has lessons to learn about like generosity of spirit and like friendship. So I get it. Just saying. Or like they may have asked her like, why do you want to rescue your brother so bad? And she'd be like, you know what? Now that I think about it, I don't. <laughs> and I was like, roll credits. Mm. <laughs> These worms a... saw you across the bar and they like your vibe. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, before we move on from uh, the uh, first act of the movie, what is your okay. issue with the fact that she's reading the book The Labyrinth? Oh, um, I 
it's not an issue. I just don't understand like like what that book is, what happens in it, what her relationship to it is. Like so so the I watched the movie Labyrinth on Hulu, right? And the Hulu single line description is like a young girl enters a world of her own creation to rescue her brother from goblins. And I was like, I'm not that's not exactly what I'm getting from the film. And the presence of the book The Labyrinth just confuses it all more and more to me. That's all. I agree with mm-hmm. that. So, Because I was like, The Labyrinth? The Labyrinth by who? Whose labyrinth yeah. is this? And like, is it her story that she's read but hasn't absorbed any of the lessons she's got from? like the Jareth action figure on her, di- her vanity yeah. and she's pulling like pieces of... It's like the Wizard of Oz style. Like she's abstracting her life and yeah. thoughts but it's a good and like if it's this a good question we never see her dad maybe her dad should be david bowie maybe her mom should appear have you guys seen mirror mask i saw it in college right. under substance abuse uh, situations sure. <laughs> so i don't remember i haven't seen it since i was like in high school so this may not it may not hold up in the way that I think it does. But that's another movie about a young girl who goes on an adventure in a fantasy world. But that world is populated with people from her real life. Right, the Jumanji thing, too. Right, sure, yes, exactly. And I love that in movies. I think it is an effective way to like clarify relationships and themes and lessons and stuff like that. And maybe Labyrinth would benefit from a little of that. Like when her dog <laughs> shows back up as Sir Didymus's horse... What are we supposed to think about that? What does that mean? What is that? It's the same dog. Sometimes it's a puppet, but it's the same dog. It bothered me that they didn't explain what the relationship between her book and the adventure was. But I have to assume that what we're seeing in the film is some sort of decision on her part to invent a story that posits herself and Toby in these roles and says, and therefore, and therefore. I think that she's ultimately not only, it's not even a dream to me. It's not even like she's going through something she doesn't totally understand it. The way I have to understand it is that she has this piece of fiction she really likes. It has to do with the endangerment of someone. And she goes, I'm having a rough time with my brother. It's probably why she is fixated on this piece of fiction, because she's found something that essentially has a character acting in a loving way that she wants to but is having trouble doing, right? And I imagine that she is essentially making up this entire story and we're seeing her imagining of that adventure. And the only evidence I have for that is that she never once goes, this is just like Labyrinth, and she never (laughs) once goes, what's all this magic stuff? She's just very with it. The whole time, I mean, she's she's on the back foot. She, you know, she doesn't know about the talking door knockers or it's all new information for her, but she's never coping. She's never going, how is this real or anything like that, which which leads me to believe that she is ultimately supremely in control of it. I wonder, like, wouldn't it be so cool if like during tax season, you could just be like, you have no power over me. And then... Everything just explodes. I mean, that would be a pretty useful, like, all-purpose all purpose thing. Also, I have to say it, not that hard a line to remember. I just remembered it. 
you know, if she's going to be on the stage. I want to fix something I said earlier. I said David Bowie should play her dad. David Bowie plays her, should be her mom's, her biological mother's new boyfriend. But isn't he in the photograph? Is he? I believe he is in the photograph. So I think I first read that on Wikipedia. I clocked it when I watched the film. And so that's why the Smith kind (laughs) of like fleshing out the relationship she has with her like biological mom and her man is so interesting because it's like, um, uh, what's the quote? Something about like, you know, getting into getting into a character that he tells her the mom boyfriend character and then Jareth says it later in the novelization. And the the new boyfriend's name is like Jeremy. Yes. Right. It's like a non fantasy version of Jareth. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, I, I just want a little bit more of that juice like there's a lot of juice in there and i i just crank it up a little bit and i'd be so satisfied and the level at which it currently exists is just like so lacking for me couple things i'm 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 looking at this the frame on hulu now um (laughs) if that is if there's no way we're supposed to notice that is david bowie um that's take a screenshot share send it in the chat (laughs) Um, but on the other hand, she has this scrapbook here, uh, full of all of her different paraphernalia. I'm working on the screenshot. And one of them is Disney's, uh, Robin Hood, which implies that Sir Didymus is her sexual awakening. Oh, Oh, what a fascinating wrinkle. I mean, if every creature... I was going to say man, but like, I don't know, hard to hard to say. Creature she encounters is something to her. Like what if and if Sir Didymus is sort of Disney's Robin Hood, a sexy guy who's good with kids, a hero. What's up with Hoggle? What's up with Ludo? What are they to her? Friends. <laughs> <laughs> Ludo friend. Yeah. So there's there's the three images here in her scrapbook. There's. One of them, where there's there's the newspaper clipping that says Linda Williams on off romance back together. That that looks the most like him over here. I don't mm-hmm. know what's going on in this one next to the Robin Hood picture. That doesn't look like a human it's being. The stage kiss. Yeah. One, it looks like him, but he has longer hair. I think we are looking at and then the one up at the Bowies. top. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. That's right. for sure Bowie. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's. And see, it's almost like Smith like just picked up on all these things, and he was like, you know what. If no one else is going to explain any of this, I'm just going to, I'm like, fuck it, I'm taking a stab. Well, it's strange filmmaking, right, to include that in the movie. And I mean, maybe they just think I'm the smartest audience member, that I'm a genius. <laughs> but it's included in the movie. It's such a weird detail. And then it is really not. I almost said expounded upon, but it's not even explained. You you would be totally forgiven for walking away from this movie going, this is, of course, about a, a, a girl whose father remarried after her mother died. If you just missed a shot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I assume that she died. And the fact that her mother is an actress is not present in the movie, that Sarah is like idolizes her and wants to be just like her is not in the movie. And Sydney, like you're like, that's good information to have. That's really good information. I think so. I mean, I had a good time either way, but I had a more meaningful time the second time around. I'll put it that. Does the movie even clarify that Toby is not her full brother? I think it's just fair implication to take 
stepmother plus new baby equals step or half brother. Yeah. Well, that seems like very antiquated thinking, Ethan. It it you does. It's it's you know storytelling uh, shortcut. How much is, does the movie even push the stepmother thing? She says one line at the beginning about like she treats me like the evil stepmother in a story. No matter mm-hmm. what I do. Yep. No matter what I do. <clears throat> Another thing that if you blinked at the wrong time, you might think she just has a rough relationship with her mom. I think the movie, which once again, I guess I just like less than the book. Is uh, it? I know this is a, seems a to revered... happen a lot with you. I guess I like books. What can I say? Uh, <laughs> the 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 movie really shows the stepmother to i'm sure she has dimensionality i'm sure she can be very kind but they really only show her to us being unpleasant or at least aggravated by jennifer Connolly. the the book because it is a book and because i could not see these performances i really believed that jennifer Connolly was just going through a hard time and had this specific view of probably a fairly reasonable woman and uh it was interesting how much narrower the movie felt to me. It felt as if the movie really had a stance on the stepmother. And so when we get to the end of this story in the novel, uh, in my interpretation of the end where, where Sarah's going to now try to join the family unit, I go, oh, that'll work out great for her. And in the movie, I'm going, you got a lot of work to do, sister. <laughs> Should we try and go through the events of the story? Is that worthwhile in any way? It's worthwhile. I, I want to hit this thing on page 34. It's very difficult. Which is, I mean, unless this is jumping ahead too much, but it simply can't be true. Um, the on, on page 34, when Toby has already been taken, right? And she's having her first encounter with uh, Jareth. We get this great mm-hmm. line where Jareth is basically saying, hey, this is what you wanted, and I can make all your dreams come true, and blah, blah, blah. And it says, she was torn. The gift was not only seductive, it was also the choice of someone who understood her, someone who cared about the secret places of her imagination and knew how infinitely much more they meant to her than anything else. Just thought that was nice. Also, like, he's offering her a crystal that shows her her own dreams. Doesn't she know her own dreams? What's up with that? But now she gets to look at them. Well, <laughs> Hannah, her her sleep score is incredible. So actually, she doesn't remember a lot of her dreams because she's sleeping maybe, so deeply. Maybe she's a visual learner. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. I think it totally is fine. I just it's just a little question that I had about what he's really offering. Her. You remember well, your dreams? Let's. You actually do. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Okay. Not all the time, but. And not always in perfect detail, but like, yeah. Sydney, you remember your dreams? Apparently it's a muscle you can kind of like strengthen. So if as soon as you wake up, you do your best to kind of like recap it, um, whether like in a dream journal, which some people keep on their bedside table or out loud to a loved one or a neighbor, um, you get better at it. So like if I have a dream that I experience consciously, I will typically remember it for like half an hour. Wow. Unless it's upsetting. And then in that case, I remember it. It'll ruin my week. I sometimes wake up and be like, the vibes of that dream were weird. And then I'm able to like pull it back out. Um, like, And when I nap, when I'm like in a shallower sleep, I dream more vividly. And then I remember those more clearly. 
But this morning I had a kissing dream and I can't remember who the guy was in the dream. I woke up and I was like, yeah, nice. (laughs) It's weird. The one time I kept a sleep journal, this was back in college. Uh, I woke up in the middle of the night. I went, oh my God, I just had the most amazing movie idea, the most amazing script idea. I wrote something down. I went back to sleep. I read it the next day and it said, a killer is terrorizing the city, shooting people in the head. At the end of the movie, it's revealed that everyone is fine because it was Nerf guns. (laughs) It's just such a profound disconnect between what I waking find to be a great twist and what I I in my sleep hours uh, cathartically find to be rewarding. (laughs) <laughs> That's real dream logic, though. <laughs> yeah. 100% dream logic. I've actually got something but- like that. More of a waking dream in that it was more edible related than asleep. But I did something the other day. So it's it's dated at like a 9 p.m. October 10th. So this is like not that long ago. I wrote while watching Rocky Horror, Celluloid Jam. It's a brand name. It's a jelly business where the jars have <laughs> film jokes or stills on them. That's what the note says. Proof. <laughs> Damn jelly business. And I force myself to not tweak with that so that it keeps the timestamp. But I, I remember thinking, oh my God. I'm going to be like, I'm going to pitch this to like, you know, super yakky. Like, let's do a jam imprint. <laughs> and in the morning I was like, cellular jam. <laughs> Was the idea that that was some kind of play on words or well, you just liked how it sounded together? Well, so in the like opening number for Rocky Horror, um, they got caught in a celluloid jam. And I assume that that's referring to like f- the physical jamming of film sock. I think I'd have to look it up. I am a, a digital age person. I, but, I have um, always taken that to just mean that they were in a movie and they got in a tricky situation. Well, maybe I'm thinking about it too literally. I don't know. Another play I was in in college. The part that I don't understand (laughs) is the part where you decided it was bad. It sounds fine. (laughs) It sounds like a... Yeah, I think people would be into that, actually. I just imagine opening up your, like, fridge and there's this condensation-destroyed film still of, like, E.T. in the gutter or whatever. (laughs) I don't know. I'm trying... I don't know what flavor that would be. I don't know what the fruit in question is, but consider me taking ideas. Also, if anyone listening to this takes this idea, we will know. I think that because you've said it aloud on something like this, it's essentially common law trademarked. But if A24 launches it tomorrow... I think you could sue. And I wouldn't be surprised, though. I also think, I just on the record, that Nerf City is a good idea. It's just hard to franchise because how do you make a second movie when it's already been revealed they're Nerf guns? Maybe the second one well, is like, oh, no. And the second one, it's really guts. <laughs> we thought it was Nerf. The second one, the police have totally stopped going after the killer because they know it's Nerf, but it's bullets. Hmm. Great. So uh, then the baby oh. got took. <laughs> I really love this part, which is on page 42 in my book, where Jareth is like hanging out with the goblins and the baby. And he's like, thank God for this baby. These goblins are really boring. I need somebody who like gets my jokes. Mm -hmm. who's like on my level as a human person, not a Muppet goblin. 
Um, a nice little bit of like, why does he want the baby? That's not in not the film. Not just to have a baby. Not in the film. Not in the film. And it's so I love watching David Bowie like toss around that chubby baby. That is what takes the place of the song "Magic Dance." And that's the who's the babe? The babe is you. The babe with the song, power. Right? What power? The power of voodoo. Right. Who do you do? What does that mean? What is it? None mean? of it means anything. What is it? But it's like imagine, imagine like having a crush on this fifteen-year-old girl. It's like, hey, hey babe. I'm so in love with you. I want to make your little baby brother my successor. <laughs> <laughs> Would that prove it? <laughs> Can I talk but about my favorite funny. page in this book? What yes. is funny? Yeah. Well, what is funny is just that, yeah, like as Hannah was saying, we don't really hear this in the film, but we get like quite a bit of it in the in the novelization where it's like these goblins are stupid and i'm (laughs) bored and i want someone to talk to so i'm gonna hope that this kid who does not speak grows up Mm. (laughs) and can be my friend maybe he's the one (laughs) that needs more friends luck he might grow up to be an intelligent goblin he might make some jokes or anyway see the point of jairus he might be of some help in ruling this ramshackle empire at the very least he might have some fresh ideas about mischief that's such a low bar. <laughs> well, I I do like uh, the 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 rest of that paragraph too, where he cites mm-hmm. he he gives us this list: two headed sheep, curdled milk, banging pans, snatch night clothes, barren fruit trees, shifted tables, moldy bread. Jareth had seen it all much too often, but this lot, rooting and prat falling around all day, still found such tired old cliches a perfect riot every time pitiful they were it's very funny to essentially implicitly insult me the reader by going interesting thing interesting thing interesting thing interesting thing these goblins were so stupid they liked that shit (laughs) um it's so evocative of the muppety goblins to me these little the little like that move you know like muppets hannah's doing the shoulder thing yeah well they're clearly like little puppets Mm -hmm. not men in costume muppet thingies um which is always adorable to see a little thing like (laughs) i don't know how to audio do the muppet i think that was pretty close thank you um and i think that paragraph is like evocative of like yeah these things are fucking muppets it's it's hard to be the only human being among a society of muppets michael kane made it work he had a human girlfriend once though so now i'd like to tell you about my favorite page in this book please page 117 to Hannah and to Ooh, Andrew. It's a bored. fun mystery. Mm. <laughs> it's it's the uh, bog of eternal stench uh, scene where I have this marked as well. I feel like ACH Smith hit this scene and was just like, I am going to go hog wild for an entire page. <laughs> mm-hmm. The seldom used adjective borbridness was inadequate. <laughs> Other commentators have been driven to the coinage evisceral after finding that glary or mucilaginous did not arouse in their readers anything like the appropriate degree of revulsion. One writer tackled the problem thus. And then there's just an entire paragraph in quotes that I don't know if that is <laughs> is a quote about something that smells bad or if ACH Smith just went into another voice for a little while. Anyway. It is fun. It's such a departure. Yeah. He's, he goes like full literary critic, but it's unclear if mm-hmm. it's it's a real. And it just feels like. You know, he, cite, cite your sources, you know. 
<laughs> he generally sticks so close to kind of just like rendering the events of the book or the movie with a few notable exceptions. Um, and then just all of a sudden for a page, it just really lets his freak flag fly. And I found it very endearing. I wish more of the book had that little authorial voice. Like, you guys have read The Princess Bride? No. Many times. No? Oh, my God. Right. One of my favorite books. Ethan, yeah. thank you. Great book. But it has that fun little framing device where the author, William Goldman, is saying, well, in the original version of the book, this happens. But I think it's boring, so I cut it out. Whatever. And then you get into the text of the story. And this passage feels so much like that to me, where author A.C.H. Smith is going, well, you know, in Sarah's The Labyrinth, it's sort of like this, but it doesn't totally work. And I'm trying to find the thing that works for my modern reader as this, like, outside guy. I'm very tickled by that. I like it. I wish there was more of it. I do think it's probably the best passage in the book. And I also think the reason that he might have decided to flex in that one moment is because most of the book is random stuff happens before we reach the baby, right? And that's the one thing that throughout the whole book we call forward to. We have Hoggle Mm. going all the time. If I have to get hung upside down in the bog of eternal stench, I'll wretch or whatever. (laughs) And so when we get there, it's it's, ACH Smith goes, okay, I've been talking it up. Let's do it. Let's go. Yeah. I also appreciate it because in the movie, that sequence is just farts. You know, the bog of a total stench is just a bunch of, like, farts and sphincters, and it's gross, and it's not very funny. And he said, I have to do something else. Now, I heard that uh, the bog of eternal stench and nothing else was Elaine May's contribution. (laughs) (laughs) A classic Elaine May wit. I'm so curious about, like, when this novelization was written in the process do we know anything about it do we know if like he'd seen the film or if it was like a script that he was working with or i from what i've gathered in my you know novelization 101 prep it varies well andrew's got all the uh the extra text there yeah. Well, that's true, but I have to say that a lot of the extra text I either didn't read or had trouble reading because it's in his fucking handwriting. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah, I read the part that was in print where they said, I said, what about a labyrinth? And he said, cool. But <laughs> a lot of this I'm a little lost on. Also, I, I did think the book was published in 2012 until we started recording. So, you know, here we go. Random incidents in the labyrinth. Big arrow. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. This feels so close to the finished movie. He must have been, at least like on set, seen the notes. And given that A.C.H. Smith wrote the novelization of Dark Crystal as well, I mean, I sort of like glanced across this in the opening, but trusted collaborator, clearly someone that they were like, you're part of the team, buddy. And this is your part of the job is the novelization. And then I think I think there's only two scenes that he also got to make up too, right? Like, in terms of things, I I I will say I watched this movie just a couple of weeks ago, and then read the book, and even then I had to go back and just check, like, did that actually happen? Oh no, that's in the movie. Oh no, I that part's the same not. Thing. Yeah. There's there's the scene where she ends up in like a bone forest, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm not hallucinating that. Yeah, and Ludo has to rescue yeah. her. And there's a scene where she ends up in in a in a forest where everything is laughing. I'm I'm very curious if those were part of the script or if he just got to do his own thing. Because again, I'm happy for him. And the way they escape the goblin house is different. How is that different? 
right? Isn't she makes a like sheet ladder rope? Oh, does she? And they all sort of like climb down a sheet rope, and then Sir Didymus like cuts it behind him and parachutes oh, right, yeah. down in a way that's very charming. But I can imagine it would be difficult to achieve with puppet. This is my favorite part of the entire novelization is when the goblins are attacking that little towered home that they end up in. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's a, it's, and it's, an, it's an invented scene necessarily so much as it, it's just an alternate version of the scene we get, right? Mm. And right, right, yes. Smith basically gives us a comedic set piece that is not at all present in the movie, which had me laughing. So Sarah <laughs> sees that the goblins are coming up outside the tower, and we haven't really so much seen the goblins in actual combat yet, so it's scary. It feels frightening. And then they quickly reveal themselves to be absolute idiots in combat as well as in their personal lives. And so mm-hmm. uh, it says... They're goobers, they're boogers. A goblin smashed the window with his pike and stuck his head inside to see who was in there. Sarah, standing to one side of the window, brought a dinner plate down upon his head. He collapsed onto the windowsill and rolled outside. Another took his place. Another plate served the same purpose. At once, a third head was poked in. This one had time to peer at the defenders. Hoggle, the goblin exclaimed. You used to be with us. Yes, Hoggle agreed and broke a teapot on the goblet's helmeted head. Another ugly head took its turn at the window. And another. And as fast as their pointed ears and jagged teeth appeared, they were stunned by Sarah or Hoggle. Just fun. That's fun. It is fun. I was excited to see it in the film. And then it was not there. Also, the description of how the guy that gets shot out of the cannon, unless I miss this in the movie, the guy that gets shot out of the cannon in the book, they have one of those dudes with the spiky helmet get stuck into the side of a building, and the, 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 the infrastructure of him is not compromised. He does not fall from his helmet. He is just horizontally inserted into the side of the building. And they say, he wiggled around, but his head was stuck in the building. Oh, well. That's in the movie. Oh, fuck. Am I wrong that that's like sort of a, yeah. a staple of, of Henson movies? Like, doesn't that also happen in Treasure Island with um, Beaker? Mm. Just spends like a lot of time. It's a very funny horizontal. Image. Yeah. There's also a part where one of the little cannon guys, like, I don't know, does a little like, like runs in a circle and you can see the little wires that hold him up <laughs> in the film. And I was charmed beyond words. <laughs> I will say, like, the, one of the, maybe the most jarring difference, I think, between movie and book for me was the dream sequence, hallucination sequence, just swapping the music-only concept for the text with dialogue and lots of boob leering. It just, I think, like, really, it's a, it's a much darker story somehow in text form. Mm-hmm. The whole thing feels much more sinister and scary in text form. And that all of the other people who populate that scene are like, as you say, leering at her, laughing at her. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like a joyous thing that she's suddenly part of. It's like this scary party where she is the odd man out completely. It's not inviting in the way that it kind of is in the film. In the movie, it reminded me of the the ballroom in The Shining a little bit. Mm. I completely disagree. I with Ethan. I feel as though mm. the 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 scene in the movie uh, just felt too 
light and fun and mystical and he's being a little creepy but it really took the air out of things for me i wasn't so worried about him as a villain especially since she then basically just returns to being a protagonist trying to find her way to the castle she's not you know imprisoned or anything or whatever I, or tempted by or him. tempted by him and also it's the one moment in the book even though i think the book handles the whole thing better and keeps him scary it's the one piece of ACH Smith writing I didn't like, which is the paragraph where he describes <laughs> he describes Bowie throwing all the bubbles out the window. He just says bubble too many goddamn times. He goes, uh, so anyway, Jareth had all these bubbles and he pushed them out the window and the bubbles, they were so round and spherical. He had more bubbles. He pushed those out too. It's like six <laughs> times in three lines. In that sequence in the book, he also is like, all of the people who populate this party are Sarah's dolls and posters and the detritus of her room, right? That she realizes that these things, these people who seem so glamorous are are sinister, actually. Mm -hmm. It's another element of like that stuff in your life is junk, you dumb girl. Right. So by <laughs> implication, one of them is Ava Perone. I'm really hung up on her. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's also that bit that follows i don't have a, a page number but i screenshotted it because i was like hold on <laughs> let me let me come back to this where she's basically like um she closed her eyes at the memory of jareth hot with shame at how she had succumbed to his charm she felt soiled by what had ensued in the ballroom somehow it had all been her fault those men who pawed her jareth trying so rudely to force a kiss upon her had she been truly innocent they would not have behaved like that toward her would they I was reading this thinking, yeah. girl, but also <laughs> Mr. Smith, elaborate, <laughs> elaborantate. <laughs> why does she think yeah. this? Yeah, why does she think that this? That struck me as well. Because that doesn't really come through in the film. The anger is, if if there is much at all, it's directed at Hoggle and even then like not for very long. The difficulty of that scene, I feel, is that she's supposed to forget everything right the part of the peach is that she forgets the baby and forgets what happened so like she can't be that mad at hoggle because she like doesn't remember that it's his fault she can't be that mad at anybody because she like barely remembers what she's doing there for another 10 15 pages it's creepy right and like as i was saying when at the top of this chat like that's the scene i was alerted i think to this film in the first place because of people talking about you know like how sexy david bowie was to me as a 12 year old in the theater and you know in 1986 but also like this is the scene that always gets cited in like every image like this is the romantic mm -hmm. ballroom number i wanted to be jennifer connelly with hair teased you know a meter in each direction um <laughs> my impression was that that scene was like somehow genuinely sexy or romantic and i maybe this is like the 33 year old me watching it and going like hell no nothing about it is enticing well i think if i thought that watching the movie the book sort of was like a splash of cold water <laughs> on my face. I was like, okay, true, true. <laughs> yeah, I'm on board. I get it now. Um, yeah, it's like it's a kind of a it's a complex one. Mm. One thing I think I'm gonna do after this is read some of like the retrospective stuff on it because I know that there's lots of it out there, but I just didn't get a chance. Worth noting that in its day. Uh, the public perception was generally on Hannah's side. Not not a well liked movie. <laughs> the sequence that we're discussing, where he where she dances with David Bowie, 
was another thing I highlighted another thing I, I didn't love about some of Smith's writing, which is Sarah blushed and turned away in embarrassment. She found herself looking into another of the tall mirrors around the room. Behind her, she saw Jareth standing alone. He was a resplendent figure, upright and blonde, in a midnight blue frock coat, diamante, I don't know words, at the neck, shoulders, and cuffs. Ruffs of pale gray skin at his throat and wrists set off the pallor of his skin. On his legs, he was wearing black tights and black shiny boots. He was holding a horned mask on a stick, but he had it lowered now to look straight at Sarah in the mirror. Behind him, dancers were whirling. He held his hand out, and I just wrote down, lists of stuff. <laughs> Too many. I mean, the, 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 I think that this is a way we see novelizations fail sometimes, especially when the writer has seen a cut of the movie or, in this case, been involved probably in the production of the movie and been there along the way. Don't try to recreate seeing too much because seeing is not a part of your medium like i have agreed to not see the movie in reading your book and so yeah you can talk about what people look like but don't be like he had pots and pail pans hanging on the wall also a tea kettle seems like he had tea sometimes felt like i could make a sandwich there too too much <laughs> yeah it does it's not um the kind of description that like gives you anything no not at all What's Ludo's deal? What is he? <laughs> He's a beast. That it? I guess so. He's a friend. Okay. He is a friend. He's very friend-shaped, I may say. Though his face is ugly and scary. <laughs> Why couldn't he be a little bit cuter? He is the most, like, where the wild things are-esque looking thing. Yeah. Where the fireies are. Oh. <gasps> Even looking at the picture in the book that I have, my eight pages of color photographs of the fireies, they scare me. They active their eyes are so <laughs> scary. I love them. That's the song I've been listening to all week. They're terrifying. They genuinely terrify me. Ch chili, chili down. Chili down. Chili down. I think it's it's a mix of th sometimes they are guys in suits, <laughs> right? Sometimes they are like marionette puppets. And the way that their heads and eyes move <laughs> scares the shit out of me. Like I watched I watched this movie in two parts. And I watched the fiery sequence and I was like, I'm so exhausted, I need to go to bed right this second. But if I go to sleep right this second, <laughs> I will have a nightmare about these awful bird creatures. Trying to take your head off. They're so scary. Well, they wouldn't take your head off oh because God. they would know that was against the rules. It's it's oh, this interloper. They try very hard they to take her Sarah off. with yeah. it. Once he, she does it to them, they're like, "Okay, girl." <laughs> <gasps> oh my god! Literally, just thinking about them makes me want to cry. I uh, I really like the the passage where she meets Ludo, and it says uh, she's describing like what he looks like because she doesn't know him yet. Uh, it says its voice had become almost deferential. Its face was still fearsome, though. Ox-like horns on its head, sunken eyes, an enormous jaw with a fang protruding at each end, and a broad, gaping mouth that looked grim. Sarah steeled herself to approach closely. She felt its warm breath on her face as she stood beside the beast and twisted herself down from the waist to get a look at it the right way up. What she saw surprised her. The great mouth that had looked so grim with its turned-down corners had actually been, of course, smiling sweetly at her. 
Gosh, she reflected, it must often be like that for poor Toby when people lean over him from the pillow of his crib. Just nice. I like that bit. I was a little confused by that bit. Is the implication not that people are leaning over to him from upside down in his crib? Oh, here comes the parent with the fact-checking of the crib, well, looking it's into a, a crib. It's a very odd angle to come at a baby from. It's become oh. common practice to let your children sleep right side up, but back in the 80s, it was a very much like a hang them by their ankles thing. We thought that that was healthy. But if you were an, if you were an older sister trying to scare your little brother, <laughs> mm. maybe that's like the only angle you've ever known. Maybe. That's a good point. And also, it feels like her takeaway, given her fraught relationship with Toby, should be, he must think I'm smiling all the damn time because I'm bringing frowns upside down in his face only. I actually treat him great. I just wish I, I saw, I wish the metaphors were a little more obvious to me. That's all. I think the thing about... Like, if the deal with Ludo is that he is a, a thing that looks scary, but is actually sweet in the way that a screaming baby is scary, but actually just needs care and kindness. Cool. Fine. Not obvious. This is theoretically kind of a children's movie. Maybe it should be a little more obvious. Am I just dumb? No, I think so much of, of the, the Jim Henson ethos is just like, look what we can do. And, <laughs> and I won't lie, like, it works. I admire yeah. it, yeah. I was, like, totally on board. I, You know, it's only in having to, like, come up with a couple smart, critical things to say about this film that I'm even really starting to think mm-hmm. about it. But it works. Like, it's it, there's nothing. I feel like also, I've interrupted you, Ethan, and we're going to come, we're going to let you finish your sentence, but, like... I was blown away watching this thinking about like again how much of it was practical and mm-hmm. how we just as a popular culture have for the most part like lost sight of like valorizing these specific artists that can do this and like love to just like spend their days doing things like this. You've obviously spent like so much time recently with Henson World but um finish finish what you're going to say. Oh, I mean, I just, I, I think it's it's just that, like, at times, he really, well, I don't know, he was he was just never really a story guy. He collaborated with great writers a lot of the time, um, but his collaborations with Froud are just so imagery-driven that, <clears throat> excuse me, story is just never what he was, was driving towards, and there is a lot of potential in this story to do exactly what you're talking about, and it just wasn't fulfilled um and it doesn't seem like a huge interest i think you can fall back on just being like well it's it's just classic myth it's it's just Mm. you know it's it's in archetypes because it's it's a fairy tale but that's a little bit of a cop-out probably i think i'm asking too much of it i think is what is the thing i just need to get on jim henson's (laughs) like this is aesthetically cool it's a fun adventure who cares level like i need to come at it not with my own baggage. I got to take it for what it's given me. No, no. I, I totally agree with you, Hannah, even though I think I had a more positive experience of this story. I think that uh-huh. the fact that the framing device is, here's some pathos. You know, it's it's she's having a tough time with this family and with this new brother. Then big adventure, all these characters, then resolution. It demands that you try to draw a line through it all. It, it demands that. And, and Ethan, to your point that, that 
this is somewhat non-narrative. Is there any instance of Henson going actual non-narrative? Because that's my criticism of this movie and book, is that it seems to want to just throw random shit that is connected by vibes together and not really have the the gall to do it. Well, you're describing a lot of The Muppet Show. Um, <laughs> you know, the, so much of The Muppet Show was just disconnected sort of experiments. Mm-hmm. A structure of variety show, though. Yeah. Like, he gave himself the gift of inherent non-narrative sure. structure. Um, then the only other thing, the only other uh, instance is his, um, you know, short abstract film that he made in his 20s. Um, but no, not aside from that. This feels extremely at odds to me with The Dark Crystal. And I know that they are years apart or whatever, but The Dark Crystal's faults are that it wants me to buy into the world building right away and and frankly have an amazing amount of patience where I'm going, <laughs> first three scenes, didn't understand any of that, but soon they'll make sense in retrospect. <laughs> and for this to now change gears into... Uh, these things are not necessarily connected. We just thought they would be cool. It really, there's nothing wrong with it. It just really took me off guard. I was not expecting to have to engage with this film in that way. Wikipedia, which, right, says that initially some of the idea of like the lead of this was like, oh, she's like a fantasy girl or like she's like a Victorian girl. And eventually like we need her to be more relatable to the commercial audience. She's a modern girl. Which causes more problems than it solves. If she was just a fantasy girl in a fantasy world whose brother gets kidnapped and she has to rescue him, I have 85% less questions and less problems with the treatment of her and her story. Mm -hmm. I will say, like, that opening scene where it starts raining and she's, like, peeling off the costume, like, I didn't know that was going to happen. I was like, oh, like, this is a contemporaneous story. So cool. Um, I felt like a little kid experiencing it. But um, I'm curious, like, I don't want to, again, put you on the spot, Ethan, but this is famously, I believe, Henson's last film that he directed. Whether the response to it was like the decide, like the nail in the coffin, or I'm not sure, but maybe, maybe you could ramble for a sec about that. <laughs> um, he didn't do a ton of directing, and movies were never really his uh main home so it's it's not necessarily like the biggest tragedy in that respect um he went off to tv from there i think it broke his heart a little bit that this movie was not widely received i think it shook his faith in his own instincts in a way that for whatever reason it it didn't shake him with the dark crystal because i think with the dark crystal he was like i kind of get the knocks on it and this one i think he really thought he was was sort of sending something commercial right over the plate and it didn't work. Somebody's got to show this guy Transformers. <laughs> yeah. He never really had a hit again um, after whatever, Muppets Take Manhattan. Um, he he was really striking out from then on. So this is sort of the beginning of the sort of sad last act of his, his creative journey. Um, he did a couple of TV shows after this that nobody liked and uh, are not very good. Can you remind me how he died? He died of uh, an infection um, of, of the lungs, basically, um, complications from pneumonia. Um, if he had gone to the doctor, you know, a few hours earlier, he would have been okay, but he thought he just had a bad cold. 
I shouldn't have asked. I know. It's sad. Ethan, are you aware that the storyteller is novelized? No. (laughs) (laughs) Now I am, unfortunately, for all of you. Very, very strange. And I don't believe it's a... It's one of his it's TV a, shows. It's a TV show. We don't have to deal with it. And it's it's not a Smith. We're gonna. It's just it's very not, weird. It's not a Smith. It's not. It's not a Smith. It's just very weird that they did do it. It might be good. Well, it is weird because those are adaptations of old myths and very very faithful ones. So I don't know where there is to go as novelizing. I'm just hitting random stuff in here before we get to the ending stuff I liked. Uh, yeah. Da, 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 at some point. They're going through some hardship. That's the whole friggin' story. And there's just this paragraph I like. To have gotten this far had required Sarah to be persistent in threading her way through the mazes and in resolving paradoxes. That was nothing, Hoggle would have told her, had he not been skating down the chute on his back, waving his arms and legs in the air like an unhinged wood louse. Jareth was king of the castle, and he would tolerate no display of emotion here, no gesture of friendship or sentimentality. With her kiss, Sarah had fulfilled Jareth's menacing promise to Hoggle that he would become prince of the land of stench. That's right before they get to the land of stench. I, I really like every time they talk about Jareth. It's pretty effective mm-hmm. myth-making for the guy. They don't show him a lot. And then there's a lot of characters in this book thinking about he's this way, he's this way. And for me, it did increase how scared I was of him or how powerful he seemed. Whatever they wanted me to think of this guy, uh, Smith's prose really got me there. I I can't imagine you find him scary at all. The performance. No, the whole, the the concept of the character in in the book. When I say scary, what I mean is that I feel like I'm engaged with the stakes of the story and... Though I know I'm reading something that will probably have a happy ending, it's believably keeping me in a place where I'm losing hope or feeling like this is unwinnable Mm. or something Mm. like that. He, in the book, seems like a very capable, unforgiving, actively evil in his personality nemesis. Whereas in the movie, every time Bowie starts doing a jig, I, I lose it. I I didn't find I don't find him threatening in the book. Um there's a passage here on page 80 in my book where Sarah is thinking about Jareth. How could she be expected to have any respect for Jareth? He was dangerous and powerful obviously, but he was too aware of it. A show off really, and mean, a cheat. He had a certain style to him, she could concede that much. He was not unattractive, but how could you respect, still less admire someone like him? The best word she could think of to describe him was cad, which to me, like, wraps the whole thing up. Like, he's kind of a joke. And maybe it's because I know it's Bowie and I'm kind of picturing Bowie the whole time, who's, like, such a delight to watch and experience. Mm. Um, That, like, I can't feel the threat of him or the evil of him, as you say, because he's a cad. He's kind of like a goof. Cad piece. (laughs) He has no power over her. And... Yeah, she doesn't totally understand that right away, but it's always true. I don't know. I I, I don't frankly have <laughs> so much of a relationship with David Bowie. I mean, I just don't. And I just felt that the actions of this character on the page 
were scary and that a guy who has little minions that will come take a baby if you just ask once is a scary dude. <laughs> That's scary to me. I like that we had different experiences, Andrew. <laughs> I don't like I it. I like that for you. Okay. <laughs> I, I did also have that bookmark, though. I like that passage. Does anyone have a baby that they'd like to banish to the, the goblin kingdom? All eyes on the guy with babies. I think growing up to be a goblin prince <laughs> sounds kind of fun. Sounds like a good gig for Toby. Ethan, what? here's a good would you rather. Would you rather <laughs> that your children were banished to, the, the, oh to, to live with the goblin king or that they they were allowed to stay with you, but they had to discuss Frozen Two unauthorized. I don't I don't know the the experience that you would all get out of out of them as authorized uh, guests, but <laughs> I I will I will keep them and allow them to guest on the podcast in favor of banishing them to a magical kingdom. We will cover Frozen Two, however. Well, you could... I hope you're aware of that now that you've mentioned it. We'll save it for like 15 years when when they have sort of a critical perspective. There's a couple of there's a couple of ancillary books. There's um the there's the novel. There's also the the new Frozen podcast they just started putting out. We listened to that today. You know, there's there's a lot of is it a story? Is it a oh, character? Yeah, it's, it's it's a it's an audio drama. Is Idina doing that? No, it's it's all new voice cast. Okay, all right. I feel a little better. I guess I'm trying to make a pun. A podcast meets frozen pun. Frozen. Do you we'll want to circle back? Build a snowball. What's up with Hoggle? He's weird and gross, right? <laughs> He's her friend. Who I, He's her has, friend. Has ambiguous God motives, bless. except <clears throat> that he is a coward. A very unsettling puppet creation. He likes jewelry. Mm-hmm. He was apparently the trickiest puppet to have to work which i i think i read that i think there's like 25 puppeteers or something involved wow it's like a person in a suit with a and the head is is puppeteer no well it's it's all it's all like mechanisms in the face that's making all those little things happen so i don't know i wish he was cuter I wish this whole movie was visually cuter. <laughs> well, it would help me a lot. I was telling my kids about this movie, and they picked up the book and, and flipped it to Hoggle, and they were like, that's one of the goblins, right? And I was like, no, that's that's the, the cute guy. <laughs> no, that's her friend. <laughs> yeah. I guess you're not ready like, to see a goblin. On the on the <laughs> the goblins are kind of cute. On the topic of like, is this really a movie for children? I'm wondering, like, would your kids like this movie, Ethan, or is this the sort of thing where you'd you'd make them wait a bit before watching it? My older daughter is is seven and has absolutely no interest in this movie, even as a little Henson fan. She finds the very concept of goblins too inherently upsetting. Mm. Um, My son is five, and he is very interested in this movie. I think he may want to watch it, but it may just be to torment his sister, which is his primary interest. A lot of good Didymus stuff in the book. He's They they, uh, just show him uh, wanting to quest all the time. He's always going, could the quest be longer? Do we have to rescue your brother today? What if this was a seven-year quest? Uh, just, <laughs> could it be just a, a multiple of seven? <laughs> I love that. That's so Yeah, cute. that's how he measures time, as in seven seven years. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. He's got seven-year plans. Yeah. See, Didymus is perfect to me. As like, I mean, he's a little bit creepy still, 
but he's like a cute little thing who has like a very clear vibe, motive, goal, presentation. He speaks in that like affected, like, wouldst thou like to go on a quest and live deliciously, whatever. There you go. Ding. Perfect. Ding dong. It's amazing. Well, he's basically a Muppet. It it becomes a Muppet movie. He's there. there. He's there. Yeah. Yeah. I think I like Hoggle better. I mean, his... Oh, no. Should we fight about it? Um, no, I like Hoggle as a character, but he's so unpleasant to look at. I have a hard time. He is, he is, he is. That's true. It's so unfair. There's that but... one part that like sort of broke my heart both times I watched the movie where he's like, damn you, Jareth, and damn you, Hoggle, or whatever he says. I was like, aw. I think it's damn you, Jareth, and damn me too. Damn me too. Oh. I mean, his arc is very compelling. Mm-hmm. Of, like, embracing friendship and love and, like, selflessness. Very good. When she's like, let's go get my brother. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. I'm oh, good. Yay. Well, there's a lot of the, of the book and movie where Hoggle is so apparently inherently good, but he just has his back against the wall. Jareth's like, mm-hmm. I'll make sure you never breathe clean air again. And Hoggle goes, okay, I'll give her the peach. Which once we see what the peach does, not as much of a betrayal as I thought. I was like, oh, he's drugging her to go be the bride of Jareth? No! And then they danced a little and she woke up in a weird place. Okay. Well, she forgot her brother, right? Isn't that the idea? She she forgets mm-hmm. everything? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. But... And then maybe she's going to become one of those junk ladies. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it's bad fate. I, I just don't think it's so compelling to have this character who it, it is supposedly in in moral turmoil, but he really is just a good person being forced to do things. And the moment that he is able to have agency, it's always in the name and in the direction of virtue. The whole like junk lady sequence was reminding me of something and I was not able to put my finger on it until right now. And I think it's, it reminds me of Tommy. <laughs> How so? How so? The, the, the setup, like the actual like design of that whole world is like the same kind of, where, you know when like Tommy first finds like the pinball machine? That's, that is where my mind went. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's what it is. Okay. I've been wondering this for a week. Because I was like, maybe I've seen this movie on TV, like I and I didn't realize it, and I'm remembering like a stretch of it from something 15 years ago. No, it's like it's probably Tommy. Oh, now I want to watch Tommy. Me too. Well, unfortunately, Ethan, we're only <laughs> doing the novelization of Quadrophenia. Oh right, yeah. So oh, I still need a scan of that. Oh, it's yeah. it's coming at you. I've only got like 20 pages left to go. I'll get it to you tomorrow. You're a star. Thank You're the you. best, Hannah. Uh, in regard to the ending, yeah. What's your problem with yeah. it? Because I like the and the book ending much more. I I don't like that the end of the book really puts Sarah in a place where she has to let go of all of her childish whimsy. That like her friendships, she has to let them go so she can be a grown up girl in the real world. It just doesn't feel good to me. And she's come so far with Hoggle and Ludo and Sir Didymus that it is a little sad for her to be like, see you never. It didn't, it did, it doesn't feel triumphant to me. It doesn't feel like good growth. And I think at this point, I was also like a little put off by 
in general, the treatment of her as like a young teenage girl, that it just it it fell flat as an ending. And um, then we actually end on Jareth, the owl. You know, it's not really her ending. And it uh, just didn't just didn't sit totally right. I don't know. That's all. I want I want her to be like happy. <laughs> and it doesn't feel like a happy ending, I guess. But I, I guess technically the movie does have like the shot of Jareth flying away at the end. In fact, I was thinking like even just from like the opening bit of this film, I was like, wait a second. Goblins could be listening to me all the time. Something to think about, you know? And then they're like hopping up in among your like bed furniture. Yikes. Yeah. Scary. I lo- I thought that scene, like that sh- whole sequence was done so well where like, I was like, oh, it feels like Chucky is back there. <laughs> yeah, I know. they're really scary. And at the end for that to happen, sort of like with her friends, where like Ludo's in the mirror and then Hoggle's like behind her bed and... For that all to be real and fun and good in the film, um, instead of like, like the, the world of the labyrinth is in some way real for her. The goblins can come and take your little brother and they listen to you and they can jump out of your bedroom furniture. And simultaneously, the good parts of the labyrinth are real. Your friendships, your, you know, like the music or whatever. It is freaky that like when they all celebrate at the end of the movie like the goblins are also there and maybe the fireys are there like the villains are also (laughs) to an extent but but it's fun and it's nice it has it has mario kart energy where you're like we're we invited bowser and wario to race with us they're bad guys but they're also our friends (laughs) yeah i don't know my my problem with the movie ending, I I I I I I almost feel like we have two different takes that they aren't in opposition to each other. They're just about different things. Like you're you're opposed <laughs> to what this is saying about childhood and girlhood and 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 things like that. And I'm fine with that interpretation. But if you remove that, it obliterates anything that even approximates an arc in my mind. So. If you go, okay, she wasn't meant to reject childish things to to mature, to, to become more of a nurturing figure to her brother, then I don't know what the movie's about at all. And, and, and the thing I like about the ending where she acknowledges all her friends and she says, but we probably won't hang out that much anymore, is there are things that, she, in my interpretation, she has created right they're figments of her imagination they are still a part of her and 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 maybe an important part but she's saying like i'm gonna not spend time with you in the same way that i that i have been i i just feel like if you take that away i i have no idea what the film is about i agree with you you can't take it away i just don't like it it's just weird it is the statement of the movie and the story, and I don't appreciate that being placed upon young teenage girls. I don't like it when it happens in any story. It is what's happening no, in this well, okay, story. Okay, that's fine. And and once again, I don't even think we're disagreeing here. That the no, I think we agree. You just think it's fine, and I it. Rubs well, me I the think the way. movie is 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 sort of emotionally contradictory in the final scene. Because it's built this arc of growth, or it's trying to build this arc of growth. And then at the end, she goes, and uh, let's have a dance party with all my made-up friends. Which, 
is fine. It's nice that it's fun, but if the movie is trying to say anything in that realm, it, that undercuts that incredibly. Uh-huh. And yet I'm glad. <laughs> like, I agree with you. It's doing that. The ending of the film is not thematically coherent, but I'm just so happy that she gets to have her friends with her and have a nice time and not just have to suddenly be a grown-up who cares for a screaming baby. Like, I think mm -hmm. Jareth is right that that's a crummy existence and it is not the sole purpose of a teenage girl. She should be allowed to have more in her life and imagination than to care for a baby who screams. Does she also have responsibilities? Yes. Should she be able to have both things, like freedom and care for a baby? Sure. But I don't want it to be the only thing that she's like, yep, now I am a mother. Like, I just don't like having that be the sole purpose of a girl, let alone a 15, like a child. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's all. I Maybe I'm putting too much on the movie. I'm bringing in too much stuff. I don't know, guys. I'm sorry. I'm gonna, I'm gonna zip it up. Well, that's okay. Bad time to do it. that because Hannah Blackman, <laughs> you are a yeah. poster of a cat hanging from a tree that says, "Hang in there." Hang in there, baby. And uh, the girl that lives in the room that you are on the wall of does a labyrinth she like m makes up a story in which she's in the book she's reading right but she pulls ideas from the room she's in and so you the cat hanging from the tree in the hang in there poster become a goblin in this story very cat-like oh. puppet that is a goblin okay. or something right and you're like hanging from a tree it's like it like kind of connects shooting arrows at her mm -hmm. or something right uh, you're pretty far in the labyrinth, so you don't think she's going to reach you for a while, if ever. In the time that you're waiting for this girl to show up so you can stop her from getting her brother back, you're just sort of hanging in there. Would you read this book? Would you reread it, having read it before, knowing what you know? Good question, Andrew. As a side note, I think it's fun. I think this is true about us, is that you have a more, like, realistic vision and i believe in magic and i love how that reflects upon how we read books uh okay i liked this book i liked it a lot i would read it again i think if you like me are terrified of the visuals of jim henson's non-muppet mm -hmm. worlds this is a great way to experience this story i could imagine reading it to a kid sharing this story discussing the choices that Sarah has to make, the journey she goes on, the lessons she is meant to learn. It's not perfect. I have complaints. The ending revs me the wrong way, as do many other things. But in the large part, I like the way this book is written. I had a great time reading it. I was engaged. It's exciting and fun. And I don't have to look at things that are disgusting and scary. I get to picture Hoggle as something cuter. I get to picture Ludo as something a little whatever. That helps me. And I liked this book, and I would read it again. And I mean, probably not by myself, but I would read it aloud <laughs> to like a child to, as, to share the experience. So yeah, good book. Pro. We'll never watch the movie again. Incredible. Sydney Urbanek, you are the Goblin King, Jareth. You steal uh, 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 an infant boy, although it's not really stealing because his sister basically fucking begged you to. And mm -hmm. here's the thing. You're in an age-appropriate relationship with a man or woman that you love. And so you do not have any interest in 
you know, romantically or sexually engaging with this teenager, she comes to you and is like, hey, can I have 13 hours to try to rescue my brother? Uh, the enticing part of it is maybe there's a flirtation between us. That's why maybe you would say yes. And you say, I have no interest in that. So you just turn her away. She doesn't even get to go in the labyrinth. The kid is yours forever. Would you read him as a bedtime story, <laughs> The Dark Crystal by A.C.H. Smith, Knowing What You Know? The Dark Crystal? Oh, fuck. Labyrinth by A.C.H. Smith. <laughs> the Storyteller by A.C.H. Smith, Knowing What You Know. I think so. I think I think I would do it once. I am not really, like really a book rereader in in general. That's just like that's a me issue. Not I don't have any opinions about rereading books, but mm-hmm. I did enjoy it. As I was saying, it really like made me appreciate the film more. It slash alerted me to certain Easter eggs that I think the film should have, you know, dialed up a bit itself but um yeah i enjoyed the book i i thought it was i thought it was fun and i enjoyed like the writing style and we um smith and myself use commas similarly which like i gotta say i appreciate as a sometimes copy editor and i think that's that's all i have to say incredible ethan warren you are a once loving mother who made it big on Broadway and left her family. You are approached by your agent who says, hey, I know you got a lot of time on your hands since you don't love your daughter anymore. And, <laughs> you know, you, 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 you're just living that, that single lady life. Would you consider being in this stage adaptation of the novelization of Jim Henson's <laughs> Labyrinth, written by a guy named A.C.H. Smith, he gives you the book to read. You read it. Would you star in that adaptation on The Great White Way? Well, you've made this a little complicated for me with the parameters of your hypothetical. <laughs> <laughs> I don't aim for anything else. Yes, absolutely. They should adapt Labyrinth for Broadway. I would star in it. Sure, why not? <laughs> um, but as for the book itself, um, I don't have a lot of use for it. I don't know. Like, it's... It, it doesn't have all the things I like about the movie, which is all the things Hannah doesn't like about it, which is looking at the pictures and listening to the songs. <laughs> um, you don't get to do those things. And I, I, I've been trying to remember, like, what is it about this that captivated me as a kid? Because I watched this on loop as a little kid. And I have no idea. But it worked for me then and it works for me now. And I would, you know, 10 times out of 10 rather watch the movie and if you're in a situation where you can't watch the movie, I don't I don't need to read the book. I'll just watch a different movie. Fair enough. Speaking of the, the <laughs> pictures, which, of course, uh, was you referring to movies, uh, how are the pictures in these editions of the book that have pictures? Uh, I, I found them a little lackluster this time around. I, they're giving, um, here's all the characters, so you know what to look at when my oh, pages are. Mine all fell out, out, yeah. Mine all fell out. But you're like, here's a bunch of David Bowie's. Here's a baby. Brian Froud's baby. Really? Yep. Okay, that's why it's not the cutest baby in the world. This yep. <laughs> rude. Sir Didymus, little guy. I mean, literally, I had not watched the movie yet, and I turned this page, and I was like, he's a fox! <laughs> <laughs> I do have to say that earlier... I said that Let's Dance was David Bowie. It was a 1984 album, and it was actually 83. So I want to apologize to everybody that had to hear me say that. 
<laughs> Good album, by the way. Andrew Overby. <laughs> Uh, you are someone who was deeply offended by Sydney's miss step sorry. on the year of the Bowie album. Oh, but you—you're—you're you're pro Bowie, is what I'm trying to say. You're a big mm-hmm, Bowie mm-hmm. fan, right? Um, you have seen it all, and you've seen Labyrinth, and you liked it, and you want a little more Bowie, and you don't know how to get it, so you pick up Labyrinth by ACH Smith because it has a picture of David Bowie on the mm. cover. Because you have my edition, not your mm. edition, which has a goblins on the a cover. A goblin with a dang pencil, like. something that does not happen in the film. Um, one, when you read Labyrinth by ACH Smith, do you enjoy it? Are you going to share it with your other Bowie heads? And two, are there pictures in your book? What are, are there illustrations? Are there designs? Like uh, what's this? Is, I I like this book a lot. I liked it way better than the Dark Crystal. It's accessible, unlike the Dark Crystal, which is absolute. You know, it's completely un- incomprehensible gobbledygook. Uh, the um, <laughs> the the book is well written. Uh, the I found it to be dark in a way the movie wasn't. This is classic authorized result that the three people who hadn't seen the movie before are going good book, and the one person who has an attachment to the movie is going not good. That's just that's just <laughs> it makes a lot of sense, and we've all been every person in that equation before. Yeah, I really like the book. I thought it was um I thought it was short enough that I never really got tired of it, uh which is a real risk that you run when you have random events leading to, you know, uh finding baby. It can I I hate more or less like episodic movies. I find it very hard to sit through like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas cuz I'm like where's this going? This has nothing to do with the last scene, you know? So it, the fact that I was able to get through this and I was interested in every little problem she encountered is saying a lot about the book. And I really like the way Smith writes. As far as the physical media goes, Froud's illustrations are the only pictures we get. So we get illustrations for chapters sometimes or just random ones throughout the book. And then at the end, a bunch of pencil drawings of concept art, which are really cool. Now... This is awesome. Are they mostly goblins? They're mostly goblins. It's mostly him going, before the movie's made, what if we had something that looked like this in there, and what if blah, 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 and it's it's very cool. The 30 uninterrupted pages that are just Brian Froud's chicken scratch, I could do without. It's nice that they're preserved for all time, but I don't know. Put that stuff in the Smithsonian and get it out of my eyes. Are there drawings conceptual drawings of Ludo, Sir Didymus, and Hoggle. I'm looking. Thank you. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. Sorry to say. um, Okay. But yeah, I really like the book. Sidney Urbanek, what do you do? Where do you do it? And why? (sighs) What do I do? Well, kind of depends on the week, but in general, I like to tell people that I am a culture writer, slash film critic who writes most of the time recently about music videos and concert films and pop music otherwise on screen. For example, David Bowie starring in a 1986 fantasy film. Um, I do that all over the place, but I try to post Even in places you might not expect. Exactly. Um, I try to post everything that I do on my twitter slash x page um 
and on Linktree, and everything for me is at the same handle, which is Sid Urbanek. Um, so I, I would say that's a pretty good, pretty good one-stop place to find whatever I'm up to, whether it's writing about whatever I'm writing about or um, making whatever my toast of the moment is or whatever I'm doing. Toast of the moment, as in a food. Yeah, yeah. Like I um, work work from <laughs> oh, home, and what's your toast of the moment? Okay, so lately, it's like a it's so any any bread is fine. Goat cheese, sliced strawberries, drizzle of balsamic, drizzle of honey, pistachios. It's so good. It's so good, and it's also like I want to be eating. It's thing. so good. If anyone um tries it. Please let me know what you thought because I, I don't think you'll be disappointed. <laughs> that sounds amazing, Sydney. Thank You're welcome, you. Sydney. Thank you so much for and thank you for joining yeah, us. Yeah, I was going to say for general. coming on and talking talking labyrinth. It's been a pleasure, Ethan. Uh, maybe you should enlighten the listener as to why we referred to you as a an authority on Henson for two and a half hours on end. <laughs> Sure. When is this coming out? Do we know yet? Uh, relatively soon. More soon than a lot of them come out. Okay. Uh, so we are currently, as of this recording, towards the beginning of a mini series that I'm working on with the One Heat Minute Podcast Network uh, and the great producer Blake Howard. Uh, we're doing a show called The Great Henson Caper, where week by week we're going through Jim Henson's life and work, uh, one episode per major work. Uh, which rounds out to a nice 12, 12 projects, 12 episodes. So Labyrinth is going to be number eight or something. We're currently rolling into number four on the Muppet movie as of this recording. It's a, a really wild, great story that comes to an unbelievably tragic ending. Wow. Great. Yes, find it at under One Heat Minute Productions, wherever you get your podcasts. Too early. What's your oh. favorite? <laughs> My favorite is the, is the Muppet movie. Far and away, one of my favorite movies of all movies. Five stars, perfect movie. I liked when they took Manhattan. That's mine. Wow. I like the caper, but um, nothing has ever touched my heart quite as much as like that little finale line of like, life's like a movie, make your own ending. Yeah. Keep believing, keep pretending. Just makes me cry every time I hear it. Maybe I like caper anyway. the best because caper is the one where they're <laughs> having the argument and then it turns into an argument about how they're doing in the movie, right? Okay, yeah. maybe Caper's the best one. I like when they did that um, special with Lady Gaga. <laughs> I think it was a Thanksgiving special, but if you haven't seen that, you've got to go see it. Sounds worth writing about. I love any Muppet. <laughs> any Muppet project is good to me. <laughs> to our listeners, please do rate our podcast, review it, subscribe to it. Check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash authorized pod. Oh, what else do we want you to do? Oh, yeah. Give us a five-star review on Apple or iTunes in which you write a paragraph novelizing a scene from your favorite movie, and we'll try to guess what movie that is on the air. Do it. Can I do it? Yeah, you can do it, Ethan. I'm going to well, do it. it. Why not? <laughs> yeah. We got to set a precedent. Nobody's doing it, so we got to... I don't think any, <laughs> get somebody I don't think do any human has ever gotten to the end of an authorized episode, so that's probably why, but... <laughs> And as usual, I'm going to close out the episode by reading a passage from a classic piece of literature. Please do tweet at AuthorizedPod if you think that you recognize what this is from. 
Oh my god, my brother Toby was stolen by the goblins, just like I asked. I can't believe <clears throat> it. <laughs> Good night. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> All right, mm. so share sound, share the specific screen, and of course, play from start. And let's go. What puppet said this? <laughs> all right, so the way Always this is- forgiven, Andrew. Good game, I'm sure. <laughs> really good game. They're all just puppets from my childhood that I made with socks. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so the way this will work is I will play a sound clip for you. It's a character that is a puppet You'll buzz in with your first name, that being Sydney, Hannah, or Ethan. And guess, essentially, what character said this? And from what? Worth two points, I guess? Character and movie? Okay. Up first, what puppet said this? Better wait a minute. Uh, you better hold the phone. Oh, Ethan. Ethan Warren. Oh. You change your tone. Don't you threaten me, sir. Let it play. You got a <laughs> Uh, so this is this is uh, Audrey too from Little Shop of Horrors. I played this role in college in a way that I now believe is probably problematic. Interesting. Uh, I, of course, played Seymour in high school, tallest Seymour to ever be, and uh, the, uh, the fellow authorized er editor of the show, Andrew Marco, was Audrey too. Movement only. There was a separate voice actor. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did the role okay. exactly the way it sounds in the movie, which now I think would <laughs> basically amount to like you know audio <laughs> blackface. So right, uh huh. You Iggy Azalea, your way through the role. Yeah, that's me, <laughs> Iggy Azalea of Bates College, two thousand four. I, of course, the Iggy Azalea of Bates College, two thousand fourteen. There you go. Up next, what puppet said this? <clears throat> <clears throat> Hannah. Hannah Blackman. This is uh this is Yoda bunking around, and I'm gonna say in um the second one, you know. The 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 one. Jesus! The second one where he flips around with the lightsaber. Can can Sydney come in with the steel? My brain just like shut off. The second one, aka episode five. Yeah, that one. I think I mean that's good enough for me. This is of course Yoda in uh, Empire Strikes Back. Oh yeah, that's what it's called. Yeah. All right. Up next, what puppet said this? Nah, 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 nah. Can't do that. You don't want that because I'm the only one. What knows how you really feel? Everybody needs a friend, Walker, and you've got me. 
That's why you read all them useless self-help books. Chicken soup. Positive thinking. Oh, Ethan. How to win friends. Ethan I'm Warren. S- I'm scared of this answer. Is this the beaver in in the tit- is this the titular beaver of the beaver? This is of course a diegetic puppet that is to say a puppet within the world of the movie The Beaver. Ooh. I haven't wow. actually seen the movie but once I heard the voice long enough I I had a feeling. <laughs> wow, well done. Yeah, that was really good. I I thought for sure that this would be one that nobody got. I know my Mel Gibson. Up next, what puppet said this? What in the world is okay, happening? There's a second <laughs> clip here for a reason. Same character. We don't feel good about this. I got I got nothing. Oh, it has an interesting sweeter side where it sings. But then also this. Alright, this is know. of course a gremlin! Oh, ew. <laughs> ew. I believe uh, I kind of cheated this one because that's gizmo singing and stripe laughing, but you know. I'm not a gremlins kid, so. Yeah, you know. I hate those things, as you know. I feel like I look like that. You look like that? <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, this is stripe playing poker, and uh, if you mean that he looks really cool playing <laughs> poker and drinking a glass of whiskey, then sure. Cool. Up next, what puppet said this? I hate your whimper. Nobody feels good about this one. Shame on us all. It is, of course, Many Skeksis conducting oh, no. a funeral. Uh, I, I try to forget. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that uh, timeless scene where they all fight over who will be the next in power after the Emperor dies, but he's not quite out the door yet. Was this his deathbed or funeral? I don't remember. Up next, mm-hmm. what puppet said this? But I want all the gold. Gold? Oh, Ethan. Ethan. I don't have to take it. I've taken a bunch of these. Well, all I can say is anybody can draw a big drawing, but not everybody can make one. I mean, that's Daniel Tiger from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, right? Unfortunately, you're incredibly incorrect. Oh, it's not not Daniel. Who is it? Anyone else um, have an idea? Here's the clip again. But I want all the gold. Is it the is it the king? Gold. It's of course not the king. You all gold. are striking out. Gold. Is Daniel Sydney? Was Daniel well, not in the mix there at all? Anybody can okay. draw a big drawing, but not everybody can make one that. There are two characters in here, and I'll just spoil that one of them is Big Bird. But I'm looking for the other one. Here's what I'll say: Fred Rogers, oh. not exactly a vocal chameleon. Some of his characters <laughs> sound a little alike. <laughs> 
<laughs> I did kind of go into a deep cut of Fred Rogers characters here. Maybe wrong to do. Well, I just want to say I'm gonna I'm gonna predict it's the character that maybe has been pissing me off. I couldn't remember her name recently. So if you could tell me, that would be great. Great. So this is of course Elaine. Lady Elaine Fairchild. There it is. My mm-hmm. wife and I were trying to figure this out the other day. <laughs> Lady Elaine Fairchild, of course, speaking with Big Bird. I'm going to give Ethan one point. Mm-hmm. He was, he, his head was in the right universe. It was the glockenspiel music, mainly. Oh, yeah. It was like, that, that was, there was no way to edit around that. I've edited <laughs> a couple of these clips so that somebody's not going like, <laughs> Oh, Miss Piggy, that's so funny, like in between lines or whatever, but there was I mean, no getting around that. where are the Muppet that. clues, dude? Help me. <laughs> Up next. What puppet said this? Yes. Hello. Oh. You're the Frog here. lovers, the dreamers. Oh, Hannah. Hannah Blackman. This is the fake evil Kermit from Muppets Most Wanted. Whose name is Constantine? Wow, I really thought you weren't going to be able to pull the name out. That's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Did I do it? This is, of course, the doppelganger Kermit Constantine from Muppets (laughs) Most Wanted. Up next, (laughs) what puppet said this? Hold still, honey. I'm going to poke you in the eye again. Um, Yes. I believe I'm going to look absolutely ravishing. Excuse me. What if I had you listen to a different puppet from the same franchise? Oh, franchise. Nuts. So it's a franchise where puppets say fuck. (laughs) Yes. Should theoretically narrow it down. Wow. Wow. All right. This is, of course, Chucky and his bride. Oh, I can hear that now. Mm Mm-hmm. Bride first, then Chucky. I've never seen a Chucky. Same. I don't care for that imagery. (laughs) Sydney, you have a deep connection to Chucky and his uh, seed? (laughs) Well, I was always trying to rent that one, and my mom would always be like, no. And then by, you know, eight years old, I was able to, like, beat her down enough that, like, you know, I I was allowed. Of course, she... Just a seed. Seed of Chucky? I have seen... um, Is it uh, Jennifer Tilly, who's the voice? Yes. Yeah, so that's the voice that I that I recognize. That might be one I've picked up from like watching YouTube clips from it though. I don't know if I've ever seen it in full. The um I, I like that the puppets have to hold guns with both hands. It's cute to me. <laughs> Our final question. What puppet said this? Classic quotable line. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like the snorting and snuffling of a dog. 
Alright, it was really difficult to populate this game with things that weren't all from Henson and Star Wars. This is, of course, the Eraserhead Baby. Oh my god. Oh, oh what is that picture? Never seen. It's not Yikes. supposed to be in color? Gross. Put it away. <laughs> Very I, gross. I have spent the last 72 hours painstakingly colorizing, colorizing the Eraserhead Baby. <laughs> I'm, I'm so looking. I'm. I am. Not looking so hard right now. Does this go in the in the show like notes? It. Do you put a link to this in the show notes so everyone can see? Yeah, this is going to be the the image on Twitter. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll waffle back and forth between link in the show notes, warning in the show notes. Warning: You will have to see the eraser head baby in color. <laughs> you know, I I've never seen it from this angle, and I've never seen it in color. And I kind of think it's cute like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't usually think it's cute or look at a ball. But I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of something about it here. I want to I keep it safe. 